Welcome everyone, this is Dan, and welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast on a uh, kind of a dreary old Wednesday morning. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, this is uh, primarily a 12-step recovery podcast. We do explore other avenues of recovery. I'm open to lots of things like that. We've had people in here talking about their weight loss journey. We've had people in here talking about their nicotine quitting uh, journey. We've had people talking about coming to find their true voice and find themselves through the practice of yoga. But primarily, we talk about the 12 steps as the path to recovery, and that's the one that I found my way on. Um, as uh, it says in that book, we have no monopoly on this stuff, so uh, I certainly wouldn't want to close the door to those other opportunities. Uh, get these commercials out of the way. DTMWW.net's my little woodworking handyman shop. If you got anything you might interest you there, uh, uh, I do work locally here in the Louisville metropolitan area, and I suppose I could ship woodwork anywhere that uh, is possible to ship to. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It can be found on Amazon. We currently have meetings here in Louisville, four of them. You can find that on 12stepspiritualrecovery.com. There's a Facebook page that supports that also. It is the 12 steps for everyone, whether if you're a traditional fel- in, the, in the traditional fellowships or, or just are looking for new tools to maybe operate on. Uh, I speak of that fact that I didn't. I, I always felt like I, I got left off the list for the guidebook on how to do life until I found these tools. The music around this podcast is uh, created by Darren Frank, uh, Jesse is uh, also jesse s is one of the guys who produces that music so that's the behind the scenes and uh there's actually a lot of 12-step folks playing instruments and stuff in that music too so darren's on uh his way to his physical recovery keep him in your prayers and we will get started off of that so i have a guest today that i've seen around since uh the my very first in 2011 i started going to this meeting here locally and uh and and i remember this gentleman and we were just talking about the fact that he uh announced his first and last name in meetings usually and i heard that and that's another thing that made an impression on me because i thought you know it, it was interesting to me that certain people did that and certain people didn't not knowing anything about traditions or anything like that uh it, it struck me, and he also carried a very strong message and carried it in a passionate way. Uh, I heard that, and I still hear it. And uh, when it, when I do see him in meetings, uh, it wasn't too awful long ago. I was at a meeting here in a town next door called uh, the Lunch Bunch. And uh, actually, I keep a little notepad in my phone of people that I hear share that I want as a, maybe a potential guest on the show and uh and 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 bart was on a panel that day and when he stood up and spoke another one of those things where i heard he's carrying the message what he said uh uh touched me struck me i heard it and uh and he was on my list at the same time but that said i didn't do anything about it i took no action and then one day i went in on a 6 a.m yoga class uh, and, and saw a guy back there and behind me, but you know, in yoga clothes, you don't necessarily recognize people right off out of street clothes. And, uh, but after a minute I did realize that was Barton. Uh, we've been doing a little practicing yoga in the mornings and, uh, and I asked him to come and be on the podcast. So I, uh, I had him on the list and I've been targeting him for a while. Uh, and, and usually just like what seems to happen in this deal when I'm walking this path, I don't really have to make things happen usually. If I would just kind of get out of the way and let things happen 
And I really like that organic way of operating. And I don't have to be, uh, you know, it says stop fighting everything and everyone and everything. Well, it's not really fighting, but I also don't have to be the driver. You know, I take my hands off the steering wheel and uh, and just do the next right thing. And, and higher power seems to bring the people into my life that I need to have in my life or want in my life somehow or another without much doing of my own power. So how's it going this morning, Bart? We practiced this morning. Good. Yep. Yep. Feeling good. Awake. Body stretched out. You've been going most mornings? You uh yeah, actually, uh my first day was December the 29th, 29th or the thirtieth. I went those two days and it was just I was sitting around on Sunday night that last Sunday in December, and uh I had known that, you know, I really needed to get back into yoga. Well, because I my primary mode of physical exercise to that point had been I've been getting on the treadmill for the last several years. But I had an injury to uh, hamstring and it had been bothering me for about 30 days and was limiting my ability. And I don't exercise because I necessarily enjoy it. <laughs> I exercise because I like to eat and I'm vain and I don't want to be overweight. And I've got a couple young kids that I got to try and set an example for as well. And so on a Sunday night, I was sitting around and I just started, I just did a Google search for yoga studios and classes and found that one at, uh, at, at Power Yoga the next morning at six o'clock. And I do not, I have not ever, ever gotten up that early in my life. <laughs> so when I told her, I was like, honey, do you care if I go to yoga tomorrow, you know, between six and seven? And she looked at me like I had two heads because I was so out of character for me. And uh, so, yeah, so I went those, that Monday and Tuesday, took Wednesday off, went Thursday and Friday. And then I was in Cozumel scuba diving from the 6th through the 10th of January. But then Ever since then, Monday through Friday, 6 to 7 a.m., I've been there every day. That is so, great. Well, I imagine uh, you're feeling the results of that. I, I feel a lot better. I don't necessarily like doing it per se, but I do like how it makes me feel when I'm done. Yeah. And that's a recurring theme in my life. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I, you know, I enjoy doing yoga. Uh, I, I, I've had a where I can like check out mentally and just do the deal of course i've been doing about three years now yeah. i think march makes uh, will be the third year third year uh since i've had a regular membership and of course i went to teacher training there too and and took that back in uh, and that was last march that the graduation from the teacher training uh well that's when that happened but uh, i'm with you I feel great most of the time. And, and I say what yoga has done for me above anything else is given me this uh, functional power to do the things I want to do in life. Uh, whether if that's uh, keeping my arms over my head, uh, taking down and putting up a new ceiling fan and I can hold my arms up for a long time. I don't tire. Uh, the other kind of physical labor stuff that I just kind of like to do, you know, I split wood for the cabin down at the, we got a place out in the country and we heat with wood. And I just find that the things that I do, I can do. And I also can do them without like a recovery time now. You know, yeah. if I go down split wood all weekend, uh, you know, I need days right. before I was okay again. You know, I actually can go down and split a bunch of enough wood to carry through the winter now in a half a day and go do something else. And yeah. so that's, I think it's functional power. It's allowing me to, 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 to do this thing called life at a, on a better level because I practice it. Well, and back in August, I ended up, I was doing something just as innocuous as I was just, I was cleaning my office and I bent down to get underneath my desk and my back like totally went out. I had this like warm shooting pain through my lower back and I thought, 
oh shit, I have done something really serious. Yeah. And I mean, I, I eased myself and got myself in my chair. I broke out in a cold sweat. I ended up passing out for a few minutes. My mom just happened to stop by the house when this was happening to me. We ended up calling uh, 911 because I really didn't know what was going on. So I got an ambulance ride to Floyd County and they, I didn't, I didn't have a herniated disc or anything of that nature, but uh, they diagnosed me with a bulging disc. They mm. sent me to physical therapy and so I did that, and really a lot of physical therapy stuff is a lot of the same kind of stuff really that they is. have you do in yoga. It is. And so that was, you know, that happened, like I said, back in August, and I had had one back issue within the previous 12 months uh, prior to that, and, you know, it's just been in the back of my mind that it was, you know, I needed to do something regularly. And uh, so finally just got to a point where that just happened, and that just, you know, I don't know how or why things happen. Yeah, at that just like what I was moment, saying earlier, you know, it just, know, just, it just all of a sudden, just, yeah, just pops in there, and yeah. you go, "Hey, wow, that was pretty cool." How yeah. that happened, uh, like I said, organically, and uh, really didn't didn't like make a big push to 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 make it happen. There's a I had a back issue last year, and I had done all that teacher training, and I kind of burned out because we were practicing a bunch when you were doing when we were going through that, and then I got laid off of my job, and I still was going and doing a lot of yoga for a while. And then this handyman gig popped up. And if I was, when I was out doing that, I just didn't feel like, you know, I, I basically just set down my yoga practice for a couple months completely. And then I was running around changing out. I had a job where I was changing out all the electric receptacles and switches in a house. It was a house with aluminum wiring and it had all copper stuff in it. And it was one of them inspection checklist things. You really need to put those aluminum wire uh, compatible receptacles and switches in. And, uh, and, and I guess that's, that's probably, a, there's probably some opinion there, but the code and different things say that's what you should do. And that's what these people wanted. And I did that Well, I bent over, had tool belt, you know, a electrician's tool belt on, and I have long screwdrivers that hang down the back. I like the long screwdrivers and, uh, and I, I would do this little hip shot to swing that. So it didn't stab me in the back of the leg when I squatted to get down to a receptacle. And uh, one of those times, man, something just like you said, bam. And I felt this, that, that pinch in the back of my back. And I just kept on working that day. I mean, I, and I suffered through it and it took weeks before I felt okay, but I just kept going, you know, and I didn't do anything about it and it went away. Uh, and then it popped back up again when I lifted a suitcase in a bad lift, like a leaning leverage, you know, I reached over something to pick up this suitcase to set it on the airline thing. And, uh, and that popped again. And then I woke up one Monday morning. I'd practiced for the first time in a while. And I don't think these two things are related. I really do not. But I'd practiced for the first time. I told myself I was going to get back in the studio. And I practiced on a Sunday night. And I think it was a renew and release, a real easy, you know, slow-moving classes. And uh, and I woke up the next morning. And I, when I got out of bed, I had a shooting pain down the back of my leg that was to the point of more pain than I believe I've ever felt in my life. Uh, I've, I have hurt myself bad over the years. I fell off a roof. I've, I've compound fractured my leg. Uh, I've done quite a few things that would, would be up there on the pain scale. And that nerve pain down the back of my leg, uh, I couldn't walk. I couldn't even begin to. I was writhing on the bed crying. I crawled into my daughter's room and told her to go wake up my dad to take him to school. And, uh, and, and I ended up going to the hospital and the second I sat on the exam, I mean, I was crying in the emergency room. I couldn't help it. It hurts just unbelievably. And, and it got to a pain threshold where I thought it was like, I thought I was hitting like a limit. Like I was not going to be able to take any more of this pain. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I, I'm at an edge where I, I can't bear this. 
And, uh, and they set me on the examination bed. They rolled me back here and got me on a bed. And the second they set me on the bed, my whole entire left leg went numb, which was a relief because it didn't hurt anymore. Mm-hmm. But the numbness was, <laughs> was a bit frightening too. Right. So I ended up kind of going down a path like that too. And my left foot is still numb. And I went, I'd been doing chiro- seeing a chiropractor, doing some physical therapy according to the chiropractor's guidelines and uh, they do some massage and some traction and some different things and they released me to get back into my yoga practice after a little bit you know I I asked him and he said yeah I think you probably ought to hold off just a little bit right and uh and it started getting better and now since I kicked the yoga back in gear um the feelings coming back in my foot and the strength and when I first started going, I couldn't even begin to do any kind of balancing poses on my left foot. Anything that was dependent on my left foot, uh, I had a real trouble with. Anything like a crescent lunge on the left or a tree on the left or any of those left-type dominant poses. Uh, and I'm getting better at it. I see the, the improvement. Uh, I think one of the things that yoga does for you above anything else, and we're here to talk about something else, but it's fun to talk, <laughs> is that one of the things I believe is that what it does for your core and, and we hear it all the time, and I've heard it and don't listen to it. Uh, the fact that it strengthens. There's my back. I have a bulging disc and two. Also, uh, a herniated and a bulging disc. So they did MRIs on me down L4, L5 area, and it's pinching that. It's pinching a nerve. Part of the problem is because I broke that right leg, and it's a shorter, and my hips are out of level. They're tilting, mm-hmm. and that didn't make any. When I broke my leg at 19, that really hasn't had an effect. But now I'm 50. Right. Uh, it's catching up with me. And probably because I've been doing yoga for the last few years, and I used that back pain for a while to acquire my pain medications and stuff, and was part of my problem back when I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would go to the chiropractor, but I didn't want to get better. I wanted more pills. Right. Uh, and um, so, increasing that core strength mm-hmm. is supporting that weak link in my back. It's not fixing anything, really. Right. But it's supporting it and giving it. Uh, uh, what it needs to, to not cause me any troubles. And I don't have any back stuff going on at all. Yeah. It's all down. It's, it's manifesting in my leg. Yeah. Uh, the back hurt those two times. I'm just a big fan of, of, of yoga. I mean, it is another thing of, uh, um, I, I, it took my recovery to a new level when I started practicing that. And, and it's not just the poses like, uh, like Susie today, you know, she talks, she speaks to what yoga is off the bat. Mm-hmm. You know, about when you're in these uncomfortable moments yep. and how to walk through that. And, and, uh, you Just know, breathe. we do hard stuff in there, yeah. you know, so when we go out, we can do some hard stuff out there too. And, and, uh, the whole yogic thing is, uh, is a way of life similar to like work, like living through these 12 step principles, uh, very parallel paths. And when I went through yeah. yoga teacher training and they talked about that, that's what come to, you know, that I could see that I was like, this is, this is. This is parallel tracks right. to the same course of living that, uh, that, that, that I'm on. And so I just keep on adding that kind of thing to it and yoga. And, I, and I've had a couple of sponsees who came in and start taking care of their physical recovery at the same time as they're doing the mental and spiritual. Mm-hmm. And we say mind, body, spirit. And, and the 12 steps and what we do there does a lot for my spirit and my mind. But we don't really do much for our bodies. And so this fills that void in that Trinity thing of mind, mind, body, spirit deal. And I've watched, I've watched guys, what I believe, and of course this is, this is judgment. This is opinion, uh, look like they got better faster when they were helping, when they were, when they were taking care of their physical recovery at the same time they were taking care of the other stuff. Yeah. 
no question about it. No question about it. And having kids, you know, you got, you know, I, I feel an obligation much like the obligation when I sponsor guys, I've got an obligation to be living the way that I'm telling them, you know, walk in the I, talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, same thing I look at being a dad you know um, if I'm gonna ask my kids to do something you know I remember my parents telling me when I was a kid don't do as I do do as I say yeah, that like, works out well don't it bullshit is that you yeah. know and so uh, yeah so I mean I do I feel an obligation to, to set the right example for for my family as well so yeah, and that's yeah. just that just ties into that's has everything to do with recovery and doing the next right thing regardless of whether I want to or not so. yeah yeah, yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I noticed, you know, big time in my recovery circles is the effect mothers and fathers have on their children when they're working this program. You know, that positive, that ripple effect thing we, we always talk about. Uh, I love seeing that in these guys who, because I spent a good deal of my madness, or, you know, I, my first 10 years of having my kids or so, uh, I was still uh, drinking and doping. Mm-hmm. So they got both sides of it. You know, I have a lot of people in my circle that's not seen their dad drink, right. you know, and, and they're getting, uh, and, and my, my, you know, I have seen my kids heal to a pretty decent extent, you know, because I know because, uh, I'm not that other dad that I used to be. Right. They got somebody stable around they can count on today. And, 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 and I can be a, a dad today because yeah. of this stuff. How old are your kids? Uh, 13 and 11. Yeah. My daughter's 13 and my son's 11. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son. Yeah. And they're here half the time. I end up divorced on my, uh, that's another piece of my story. So, uh, but they're with me 50%. You know, they're here a week and they're a week. And, right. Uh, my kids did a little, my son did a little allotine for a while when I was first getting sober. Part of the reason was I was on home incarceration and, and if they kind of, at that age, they couldn't stay home. Right. Now I can leave them at home. Yeah. Uh, but they had to go with me, and there was an team meeting across the hallway out there at that church, and, yep. and, uh, and, and somebody mentioned it, and they went in there, and, and my daughter ended up doing some speaking for Alateen. It was yeah. that touching. You you want to have something to hit your heartstrings, is have, right. listen to your daughter tell what effect you had on her. Yeah, I bet. And then, uh, and then flip it over and have her talk about what it's like today. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your sobriety date? That's what usually that is my starting point. <laughs> January the 11th of 1998. 1998. Yeah. So if my calculator, that's a, just celebrated just, 22. Just celebrated 22. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah so that, and I heard you say your age. So you were in. 27 your, when I got sober. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'll a, be, that's a pretty fascinating thing. You know, guys don't, that don't happen often. The longer I'm sober, the more grateful, you know, because it's funny when I got here at 27, I really thought life had passed me by because a lot of, you know, my my college friends, um, people from high school, you know, they had families, they had, you know, like real job careers and they had kids and they had bought homes and, you know, I'm living at home in my mom's basement. So, you know, I got here at 27 and thought, oh, my God, it's all over for me. It's all over for me. There's nothing left. It's passed past me by. And you stick around for a little while. And, you know, the, so the longer I'm sober now, looking back, um, you know, and one of the things at 27, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but I, I bought this poster in my first year of, of sobriety that had Janice Joplin, 
Jimi Hendrix, mm. Jim Morrison, yeah. and Kurt Cobain coming in like they're welcoming, 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 welcoming him into wherever they were, heaven or whatever you want to call it. But it's just it's like Dali-esque painting, and it says Forever 27. And it's like, you know, these guys, of course, I'm, I'm a little more right-sized now. But uh, at that point in my life, I thought I was a, a lot bigger deal than, than what I understand <laughs> reality is. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's just, you know, I've been given a second chance. You know, those poor souls, you know, they all died choking on their own vomit or whatever, you know, ODing or, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that but yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel so, so, so fortunate that to have, have not only gotten to AA and gotten sober at 27, but also heard the message of recovery that we have available in the 12 steps and, and felt like I, the way God set it up for me was I, I didn't jump into this 12 step thing because I'm a great guy. I didn't, God knows I did not want to do the 12 steps. I didn't want to make it a way of life. I certainly didn't think it was going to work for me. Um, but the alternative that I was presented with when I got here, you know, the state's initial plea, cause I, I got here after a, a fourth DUI arrest. And the state's initial plea was one to three years in the penitentiary. And I'd seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, and I was absolutely terrified of ending up in a starring role. And that's, that's, that's really it. And so for me, um, when I heard the message of recovery, I certainly didn't want to accept it. But on the other hand, I was afraid that if I didn't do this, you know, like the, uh, the other message that I heard was, yeah, you got the good promises that are in that book. But there's some negative promises in there, too, you know, particularly when we're around where they talk about the fifth step uh, it says, you know, if we don't reveal our whole life story to somebody else withholding nothing, we're not likely to overcome drinking. Yep. And that that terrified me. So when I did my fifth step the first time around, um, I didn't withhold anything. I, I told him everything. I was a little over a year sober at that point. So I didn't I wasn't that aggressive. I didn't get right into it and yeah. get everything knocked out in my first 30, 60 days. Took me a little time, but um, the first time I did it, I I disclosed all those deep, dark, you know, primarily sexual crap from you know an adolescent age that I was so ashamed of and guilty about, and, carrying uh, around like yeah, dragging around like a bunch of balls behind yeah, you on chains. Different stuff that I, you know, obviously hated about myself. Right. Uh, but I was afraid to withhold any of that stuff from my sponsor. And uh, so fortunate that I got here at 27 and got the message Yeah, at 27 right. as far as th making the steps, the recovery, a way of life. Because it's not just about not drinking and using drugs one. You know, that's that's the admission ticket yeah. that gets you in the door, yeah. but that it doesn't get you on the ride. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. Uh... Yeah. I got to put that stuff down. That I, I, in my opinion, I don't think you, you don't get to play both sides of the fence on this deal. And you know, that's when we see people do that, try to play that both sides of the fence. Um, and uh, but, yeah, it's, a, it's like I said earlier, it's like it gave me some way to operate because, frankly, I didn't have one. And it's not my parents fault. It's not. I have a great set of parents. You know, it's not the education system's fault. Uh, I don't know where and, you know, and I don't know where to put you. Know, I don't even want to. I don't care. But. 
I didn't have any way to, to do this thing in a way that made me feel like a, like I deserved to share oxygen with you, you know, and, mm. and, and now I do, you know, and it's way better. It's way, way more than that, actually. You know, I mean, it's gone beyond my wildest understanding. You know, at 20, it, in my 20s, I was hitting hard and, you know, wasn't having any consequences. And that seems to be another thing. You know, we need some consequences to get. I had to hit a wall before I'm going to stop. Right. And, uh, and so if you're constantly, you know, it's actually a blessing. Now, you know, you hear a guy comes in and he says, you know, I got another DUI and I go, good, right. you know, all right. <laughs> now we're, now we got something to work with. Uh, I did save as you, except for it was at 44 years old that the judge said I was going to prison and, uh, and it was just for a matter of how long, you know, and then the initial thing was six to 20. And none of that sounded like an eye even close. And, you know, and I had people around me said, you know, if, if, even if they just sentence you to six, it's only three. I go, ah, you do it. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to have that kind of consequences. And I bounced around for four years before, you know, I, I played around in AA for four years, uh, trying to do everything, but do it all, you know, to the best, give myself to this, push all my chips to the middle of the table and, and that, that, that threat of uh, incarceration. And I didn't like you. I didn't think it'd work. Yeah. But you know what? It was a Hail Mary pass. It was, uh, there was nothing else. There was no other solution being presented to me. Right. You know, liking it to being like in a black box, a cardboard box. And I mean, it's painted black on the inside and it's taped shut. And there was a pinhole of light shining down through one corner. And that was the 12 steps. It's like um, my, uh, the sponsor that I have, uh, one of the other guys he sponsors is a, is a fairly well-known speaker from Nashville. And uh, one of the things I heard him say, this was, wasn't, I mean, this was in the last five to six years. You know, it, in the closing, it talks about our book is meant to be suggestive only. Yeah. But it's the only suggestion we got. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for something else, go try it by all means. But if you're coming to AA to get sober, we got 12 steps. We, you know, this is the program is of recovery. It's program. like, it's like a buffet that just serves steak. Yeah. You know, yeah. we got steak. Yeah. Well, how about, I mean, can I get a pork chop or you got any, we got steak, you know, we don't have yeah. anything else. It's, it's, it and, is a suggested program of recovery, but it's the only suggestion yeah. we got. So. Yeah. And trying to eat it all a cart. Like I did for those four years of just picking which ones I was going to do and which ones I wasn't going to do. Didn't work out for me. And I haven't seen that work out well for anybody nope. in the last 22 years that I've been sticking around. And that, and frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to some degree for that because that, that keeps me, no matter how long I've been sober, you know, I, I got today, yep. you know, I, I literally, I, I've got today. Yep. What I've done the last 22 years is relatively meaningless if I don't keep doing it today. Today. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, you, you, you pin, you peg something on that. And, uh, uh, well, we was talking about step two last night and it was Brandon that had to leave last yeah. night. You know, we do that. We, we, we have an open lead and a step lead every other week. And then we celebrate birthdays on the last Tuesday and, and Brandon, uh, and, and Brandon's interesting in that, that I saw him walk away for a while and retain his sobriety. Cause when I got around at first, I heard about this guy, but he didn't, he really was, Hey, he kind of checked out, you know, he was off doing life. You know, he's retaining sobriety and operating on these principles, but he wasn't like joining in the fellowship portion of it and participating in that end. But, you know, like uh, I thought I was thinking about that last night, you know, that coming to believe I, I can broaden a lot of these definitions. And it's certainly not meant to water it down or to it's to expand them and broaden them. You know, those people doing that also made me come to believe that that don't work <laughs> the same way I came to believe 
that I could be restored to sanity and came to believe that this does work. Uh, you know, and I hate that little deal about, you know, that, that some people out there have got to die so others of us can live. Uh, but, but it seems to be, we just lost a girl, you know, here this week. And a young I saw, girl. I didn't know her, but I saw I didn't that know on her Facebook. I'd seen her name it, uh, around. You know, it, 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 it breaks my heart. 20, I, I think. Yeah. She was, she was young and now you got a motherless child out there and it's, uh, yep. Yeah. Fact, the fact is this kills you. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember when I got here, I remember hearing people talk about this shit will kill you. And uh, I, I I, truly believed at that point in time they were being overdramatic. You know, in spite too. of in spite of all of the, the evidence that's out there, I, I knew one person. Uh, there was a guy from my high school. He was several years older than me. Are you from here? I graduated from Clarksville in 88. Okay. Um, and there was a guy who... Uh, had graduated from Clarksville, I think a year before I got to Clarksville High School, uh, who, I don't even think he was 21 yet, but he had killed himself drinking and, not intentionally, but, you know, he was in a drunk driving mm-hmm. accident. He'd been drinking and driving and killed himself. And he was really the only person that I could think of from personal experience who had died, you know, from drinking. And it was an accident. Se. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I really, I believed when I got here that they're just, you know, this whole, this shit will kill you stuff. I, I think they're just over-dramatizing, trying to scare, scare me, me into staying sober. And I can tell you, at 22 years sober, uh, it, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, this shit will kill you. I have watched and seen it kill folks over and over and over and over. And You read the, the obituaries. Uh, oh, you can you can see them. You oh, know, you don't have to say it. Some people do. The motherless say, you children know. that it leaves behind, the fatherless children that it leaves. I mean, it's just, it's and, and knowing that, you know, we've, we've got a solution. Yeah. We've yeah. got a way out, man. And, and not only do we have a way out, but this life that I, because that was the other thing, you know, when I first got sober, God, life was going to be so gray. You know, if I couldn't, if I couldn't drink and use drugs and chase women the way I chase women and deal stuff and be caught up in that whole little wannabe gangster lifestyle, um, man, if I can't do that, life, life is over. It might as well end. God, I don't want to be a boring guy who's, you know, cutting the grass, wearing his black dress socks and freaking has a mortgage and a <laughs> nagging wife and pain in the ass kids that he's got to be responsible. I don't, oh my God, that looks terribly gray and dull to me. I mean, hell, look at my exciting life in the fast lane. Yeah, I'm living at home in my mom's basement, but come on, man, this is exciting. And I mean, I, I was such a joke, man. I mean, I just, I look back on that kid and I'm like, God, you couldn't have been any more clueless. And, um, you know, it's like the contempt, it's like the line in the book that talks about contempt prior to investigation. I had never been sober. I hadn't, I, I had absolutely no freaking clue. You know, the shit that I've done over the last 22 years. I mean, I just got back from scuba diving in Cozumel. One of my favorite things to do actually is uh, scuba dive with sharks, you know, tiger sharks, bull sharks, lemon sharks, reef sharks. I've been on several trips getting to dive with sharks. That's that's like, now you want to talk about a spiritual experience. That's, I mean... Uh, that none of the none of the lifestyle that I lived as far as booze and drugs that that shit that's like child's play yep. compared to the shit that I've been able to right. do sober that is yeah. just wow I mean to Get be high present, on life oh d- dude to be present for the birth of my children yeah right and then to have the connection and the awareness with my kids and my wife that I have today uh, to get to coach my kid playing baseball. Um, 
My listeners will hear me say this a bunch of times, but my sponsor in the beginning, when certain things started happening for me, these, these, and I will just say they're miracles in my life. They were miracles. They were things I were getting to be able to experience. There was no way I was going to get to be experienced this stuff. If I was on the path I used to be on. And he said, he advised me to start writing them down and make a list. So I did. And then we would talk about something and I'd share with him. Cause you know, like, uh, he's a guy that says, call me every day and it's not an option. <laughs> And, uh, and when I had something, when I would share, so as I started receiving the benefit and I started having things happen and he'd say, put that on the list and you, know, you just wrapped off a bunch of what I call miracle list items that, oh. you know, they wouldn't be here if it wasn't, if, if I, if I had not picked up these tools and changed the direction I was going, I probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you started using? Uh, 13. It was, I believe I, I, I've looked back and I, I have, if I wrote if I wrote it down on paper I could tell you exactly but it's either 1983 or 1984 the first time I ever got drunk uh, I was up at Indiana State University where my uncle my mom's youngest brother and he's about he's about ten years older than me um, he was going to college uh, at Indiana State and my grandparents took me and my younger brother up there and I was in eighth grade at the time. And they were having these Tandemonia bicycle races, a two-seated bicycle, a guy's dorm and a girl's dorm or a fraternity and a sorority. They paired up and they had these two-seated bicycle races. Um, and after the bicycle races were over, we went back to the, my uncle was in fraternity, Sigep, uh, and um, went back to the fraternity house. Of course, they had a keg of beer and my uncle hands me a beer off the keg. Hmm. Now, just to kind of give a little context to the story, I got two younger brothers my mom and my dad got divorced when I was about five years old. My mom remarried a year later. So from what I'm bringing to the party this particular day at the fraternity house, um, I got two younger brothers who I'm getting stuck watching on a real regular basis. And I'm in eighth grade, so we're starting to have little middle school parties and whatnot. And it seems like there are too many occasions where I'm getting stuck watching my two little brothers while my mom and stepdad are going to Tri-County Shrine Club to hang out with their friends and drink. Because drinking was a big part of my mom and stepdad's lifestyle. Uh, and, it, and it was a big part of my dad's lifestyle, too. I mean, when my dad came and picked us up, usually once a month on the weekends and took us to Salem, Indiana, visit my grandparents, he always had a Miller Lite between his legs. So I grew up around a lot of booze. And in fact, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, my alcoholism was largely my family's fault. <laughs> they were responsible. If they hadn't done what they had done, if I hadn't been brought up that way, I wouldn't be acting this way. So don't get pissed off at me because I'm behaving this way when it's y'all's fault. And uh, so anyway, what I'm coming to the party with on this warm spring day at Indiana State University as we get back to the fraternity house is I got this major resentment that finally, finally, because I'd watched my parents do all this and I couldn't wait until I got to the age where I could finally drink. And, um, you know, I had, I had had sips off beer and whatnot before, but this day my uncle hands me a beer off Get the keg. And, you know, I remember my, my, my grandfather, who was always a real stern figure, he, very loving guy. And I mean, he's still, but he always commanded respect from me. He was one figure who I was a little bit scared of and he never laid a hand on me, but, yeah. but he just, he Both just, my grandfather's that similar. kind of towering figure who commanded that kind of respect from me. So I remember him looking on with a look of disapproval, but he didn't say no. My uncle hands me a beer off the keg, and I proceed to have, I don't know, I think I went through two and a half, 16-ounce beers before my grandfather stepped in and said he's had enough. And at 
somewhere during this going on, this was, like I said, 1983, 1984. So breakdancing was popular and I was really into the whole breakdancing thing. And my uncle knew this and he thought it'd be a good idea to get me out in the little courtyard there to do my breakdancing routine for, you know, the rest of the, yeah, the, the party goers. Yeah. And uh, so we broke down some cardboard boxes and threw them out there in the courtyard. And I did my little breakdancing routine. And I, and I don't know when in the two and a half beers this all occurred, but, um, you know, and I remember everything about this day, man. I, I, well, until after the fact, but up to a point, I remember after I got done with my little breakdancing routine, I remember the song that was played. It always feels like somebody's watching me. That's the only singing I do, I swear. But um, after I got done with my little breakdancing routine, I remember all these hot college chicks coming up and patting me on the head and talking about how cute I was. And the other thing that I, I was bringing to the party that day was a real insecure kid who always desperately wanted to be somebody else. Whether it was Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons or, you know, a, a rock star, I was a big Kiss fan, or whether it was one of the other guys in my class who, were a, who was a better athlete than I was or who had a better looking girlfriend than I did or who, was, who wore nicer clothes than what I did. I always desperately had wanted to be somebody else to that point, at that point in my life. That afternoon, for the first time I can remember, being Bart Medlock was wonderful. I didn't want to be anybody else. I, I, it was like I had arrived. Right. The magic had, as, as my sponsor calls it, the magic had happened. Yeah. And literally the next 13 years of my life until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous became about attaining that feeling that I got that afternoon as often and as frequently as I could. And, um, you know, I, I'm not one of those people whose drinking was all gloom and doom, man, because for the next 13 years, most of the next 13 years of my drinking through high school and the five years I spent at Ball State, most of that was freaking bliss, you know, largely because ignorance is bliss. But but I mean, it was bliss, man. I had, I a, had blast. a blast. It was it was like Animal House. It was, you know, I've heard a lot of people been been in AA for a little over 22 years. And I've heard a lot of people tell a lot of stories that sounded like they may have had as much fun drinking and drugging and chasing women as what I did. I haven't heard anybody with the exception of one guy from California. That's another story. But there's one guy that I've heard who sounded like he may have had more fun drinking, drugging, chasing women than what I did. And, and so, I mean, it was it was fun for a long time. But then, you know, after I graduated from college, uh, I, I hadn't prepared myself. Uh, you know, I'd been drinking and partying and doing drugs, so I didn't have any other options but to move back in with mommy. Um, and so I did that, and really I took the first job that I got uh, after I graduated from college in 1993. And um, up to this point, I didn't have, I hadn't had any legal, any legal troubles. I hadn't been arrested. God knows I should have been on many, 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 many occasions. Yeah. I'm not sure. And it was I, a different day, too, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but... Moved back into my mommy's basement uh, and kept living the way that I was living. Uh, and, and somewhere in college, you know, they talk about the invisible line and all that. And I don't, I don't know exactly when that occurred or if that's the case. But I, I had become a daily drinker uh, and really anything I could get my hands on. But at once I turned 21, it was, very, you know, I could go in the liquor store yeah. at a time and get Very it. available. Yeah. Um, and consistent. Was, well, and then, you know, that was the other thing. See, that's what I had watched my parents do. You know, I remember my stepdad calling me at 
you know, at quarter to five on any given day and saying, hey, make me a makers and water and put it in the fridge. I'm on my way home. <laughs> and so, you know, I just thought, Dude, you want to wait till you from the door to the making the drink, man. I need to have it that's, ready. That's that's what you know, that's just that's what you do. And so I had this one particular job selling Yellow Page advertising. I think it was the summer between my junior and senior year of, high, of college. And at that point, we had a sales meeting every day. That was how we ended our our day. We our sales meeting was at four thirty or five, and so my routine was I'd show up to the sales meeting with a forty ounce. I mean, the day the calls were over, you know, and that's what yeah, work was over. My, yeah, this my, is and I, you know, wind down this time. Is, this is I'm a big guy now, you know. This is what the big guy, you know, this is what the adults do, and so that was kind of my first memory of becoming definitely a daily regular, just doing what I saw my parents do, and. um so after I graduated from college, I hadn't prepared. I hadn't sent out resumes or done anything. So I just took the first sales job selling satellite dishes door to door that I could get. Fell in with a company of people who the management drank and used just like I did. Mm, um, I mean, it was a big we party. You know, we were drinking, smoking dope, doing cocaine on a real regular basis. And I did well with that company. Yeah. Uh, they transferred me up to Indianapolis. Uh, and that was where I had gotten my first DUI. Um, somewhere in 93, over a two-year period. No, that was in 95. Over a two-year period between 95 and 97, I, I got arrested for DUIs on four separate occasions. The That first DUI that I'd got up in Indianapolis was what had, I didn't, I wasn't making much money to begin with um, because the way my finances worked at that point in time was when I got paid on Friday or whatever, I would buy enough booze and dope to last me until the next payday. And then whatever was left over is what I used to pay whatever bills. And I mean, I, I was terribly apologetic about it, but there was just never enough money left over to take care of all those folks and those obligations. And Priority. for God's sakes, it made, it made no sense to me whatsoever that I wouldn't do it that way. I mean, I couldn't, it made no sense to me whatsoever to like pay bills first. And then what was left over is what I got to use for booze and dope. I was well, that's dumb. Why would I even work? If if I was going to do it that way, why would I work? That's pointless. I just wouldn't have a job. And I'd go, you know, I don't know what I would Bum do. Bum it. Yeah. So um, there was, so I didn't, long I couldn't financially support myself with the, with the habits that I had. So um, after I got that DUI, that kind of pushed the envelope over the edge and bailed on the lease that I had up there and moved back into mommy's basement and got a job in a restaurant business. Nice thing about the restaurant business in Louisville, Kentucky is the bars are open until four o'clock in the morning. So if you get off work at midnight or whatever from your bartending or your serving job, you got a pocket full of cash. You can just go buck wild. And I did. And that was how I lived. Uh, just, I mean, blackouts, uh, drinking and driving. Uh, I'm real fortunate that, that no, no tragedies, uh, no real tragedies during that time. I did some things during those years that um, uh, I, I am ashamed of and that I have addressed. I treated uh, particularly some women. I treated some women uh, horribly. I, I hope my daughter never crosses paths with the likes of, uh, of a person who treats her. Hopefully I've raised her to the point of where she would never you know, tolerate it. But, but um, nevertheless, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I was not a good guy. I was not a good guy. And uh, I, I've made amends to the best of my ability. Uh, my sponsor is aware of everything that I have done uh, along those lines. So 
um, after I, uh, the last DUI that I got to date was in November of 97. Uh, my little brother played football for Clarksville High School the year that they went to the state championship, and he was playing in a regional game, uh, and that was one thing. I, I always went to my little brother's football games. And um, the night before, they were playing a regional football game on a Saturday night in Westfield, which is just north of Indianapolis. And the night before, I had been out uh, drinking whiskey, doing cocaine, smoking dope with a buddy of mine, uh, John, and um, who he's sober now, too. We had been up at some God podunk bar in Borden, Indiana, seeing some band and hanging out with some people that I didn't know, but they had the things that I like to do. And yeah. so, and it was theirs. And so they were offering. And so that was all good. And we ended up at sneakers and I stumbled outside of sneakers. I don't know what time it was, probably around three or four in the morning. And I, I knew the game was the next day. Sneakers. Yeah. And uh, there was a police officer there that I, that I knew and who was an assistant fo football coach. And I told him, man, I, I can't find John and we got the game tomorrow night. I don't know how I'm going to get home. And he get in. And so he gives me a ride home in the police car ride back to my mom's I should say yeah in the police car the next day I I come to um, and the plan was me uh, I was going to ride up to Indianapolis with my mom and another friend of ours Angie and we were gonna stop and we were actually gonna stay the night with one of my old Ball State roommates and his wife and uh, they lived in Indianapolis and so it was gonna be a reunion thing yeah I can't wait and so um, I come to the next day and I'm like, you know, I'm ready to partay. I mean, it's on, you know, I come to, it's like noon. I'm like, all right, let's rock and roll ladies. Let's you know, come on, let's head them up and move them out. And my mom's like, dude, chill out, man. It's noon. You know, we're supposed to meet grandma and grandpa because we were going to meet my grandparents at a rest stop up around Scottsburg or whatever and follow them up there. And uh, she's like, you know, chill out. You know, Angie's not going to be ready for a little bit. You know I mean? We got plenty of time. Relax. I'm like, man, you women are just too damn high maintenance. So I went out, jumped in my car, and I ran over to my buddy John's house. He should say John's mom's house. He was real cool. He lived with his mom, too. And uh, grabbed, because that's where I'd left my Seagram's VO from the night before. And, oh. I mean, I had to have my bottle. And uh, so I ran over and got that, and then I went to Rush's Tavern, because I knew those folks wouldn't be the same if I didn't check in and let them know what was going on with me. I knew they were consumed with, you know, what's yeah, going on with yeah, Bart. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. nothing's I haven't seen more Bart important. yet today. Nothing's more important than what's going on with Bart on any given day. And uh, so stopped in there, had a few cocktails, and then it was time, you know, it was like 3 o'clock, time to head up to Indy. So I go out and jump in the car, head up to Indy. I got my big moose cup of, uh, of my VOs loaded up with my splash of Coke, and I got my little glass ashtray with my one-hitter in it. I'm, I'm prepared for a road trip, you know. Head up. I get up to like I get up around the Henryville exit. It's a cold November day in '97, and I it occurs to me I had a little moment of clarity. I'm like, dude, you are wasted. And uh, so you know what? I all of, I put this beautiful plan into action. I said, you know what? It's I'm almost to the rest area. It's almost three o'clock. Mom will be meeting Grandma and Grandpa up here. I'll just pull off the rest area. I'll hook up. I'll ride with them. We'll get my car on the way back. It's a beautiful it's cool, plan. Yeah. This is brilliant. I got a plan. So I pull off in the rest area, and this is before cell phone, so it's not like I can call and check with anybody. And uh, I pull off the rest area, and Grandma and Grandpa aren't there, and Mom's not there, and I'm just like, well, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. I don't know where I had picked up Thessalonians 5.18, but I had picked that up somewhere along the way and uh, pulled that out of my back pocket. And, uh, you know, oh, well, hey, because, I mean, I got to get to the game. I mean, it's critical that I get to any, you know, I got to get to my buddy's house and then I got to get to the football game. And so it didn't matter what the, you know, it was just, that was my plan and nothing could get in my way or tell me any different, no matter how wasted I was. And um, so I, I thankfully um, arrive at my buddy's house, I mean, wasted, uh, pour myself out of the car, go in and we start doing even, you know, shots of freaking VO and chasing it with Mountain Dew because that was uh, something we had done in college, like a little ritual that we used to do two or three times a week when I was in college. Seagram's VO, chase it with Mountain Dew and started doing that. And then I head up to the uh, football game and uh, because it was getting close to game time. And so I told Ed and Gina, well, I'll, I'll be back, you know. And, you know, you would think, well, my God, those people, if you were that wasted, those people let you drive. And, you know, the thing was at that point in my drinking, yeah, I was wasted, but you would have no clue of exactly how wasted I was because I was always yeah. that wasted pretty normal. much. Yeah, so, you know, um, so I head up 31 North towards Westfield and uh, I look in my rearview mirror and, Oh, I see the lights and then they're not on, but I see there's a cop behind me. And, uh, so I buckled, you know, okay, got to be careful. And so, you know, I'm being real careful careful with my driving at that point. And the next thing I know, the blue lights come on and I'm like, oh shit, because what I'm bringing to the party at this point is three previous DUIs, two convictions, one that had gotten reduced to disorderly conduct. And what I didn't tell you earlier is that after my third DUI, my second conviction, but my third DUI arrest, I'd made up some rules about my drinking because I knew if I got popped for another DUI, I knew all this shit was going to catch up to me and I was going to end up in some serious freaking trouble. Did they warn you? By that, (laughs) by that point, by that point, all of, all of that had went out the window. And so I got the cop. So when the cop lights come on and I'm wasted and I'm like caught, I'm like seeing images of the Shawshank Redemption and I'm terrified. So for a brief moment, I thought about running, uh, but I didn't. Cop comes up and he has me do the little finger test on my hands while I'm sitting in the car. I don't and know that says, one. Well, you, did you just go? Doom, doom, oh, do you? Doom, yeah, yeah. I had not he, said, had... he says, well, you seem okay to me. So let's just see. He said, but let's just do one more thing here. You know, step out of the car for me. So I step out of the, no, no, no. He gives me, does he give me the, I can't remember if he gave me the breathalyzer in the car. Or I just, yeah, he gave me the breathalyzer in the car. That's right. He gave me the breathalyzer in the car because he didn't think I, you know, he thought I was okay. He thought nobody, because I just, he's like, was there any particular reason you were only going 45 in a 50 mile an hour zone? I was like, well, you know, it's kind of rainy and dark out. Just being careful. I'm not, I'm not from here. And uh, so he seemed to, you know, okay. And uh, buying that for No, but I tell you, after he gave me the breath a lot, he, you know, after he looked at it the first time, his eyes got kind of big and he tapped on it. And, uh, <laughs> Shook it, knock it on the like, hood. Let's do this again. And, uh. So he gave so me the breath. Got to be out of calibration again. or something. After after the second round, he said, "He said, well, I'm gonna need you to step out of the car." So I step out of the car. He escorts me around to the back. He says, "You know, I need you to walk this white line and all this." And I'm like, "Nah, it's like this isn't gonna, you know, I'm like this is pointless." So he just he puts me in the back of the cop car. It's interesting that he gave you a breathalyzer because you know, the general thing is to do it the other way around. That's a walking up kind of thing for a probable cause to give you the breathalyzer. Well, okay, yeah, who knows? And I'm not trying yeah, to make sense out yeah, of it. It's just as yeah. interesting. So uh, 
So after he puts me in the back of the police car and, um, you know, it's like I had for the last year and a half to two years of my drinking at that stage, I had, I had come to pretty much every morning with, cause I did not, I was, I'm 27. I just turned 27 years old. Um, the, the goals that I had formed in middle school, you know, early, late adolescence, let's say 13, 14 years old, dude, I was supposed to like graduate high school, go to college, get a degree. And as soon as I got my college degree, some CEO of a fortune 500 company was going to stumble across my path and they were going to see that, holy shit, look, I mean, this is the golden child. This is the next savant for whatever product or service they're offering. That, and they were just going to, and it was going to be in Chicago, New York, or LA. And I was going to be in the corner office of some high rise and I was going to have a six figure salary. That's how my life was supposed to go. See, I, I thought I was really going to be exempt from the toiling and the, 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 the hard work and the, the, the time consuming climb of the corporate ladder. I thought I was going to be exempt from that. I really did. I thought they were just going to pluck me after I graduated from college, put me in the corner office in New York City, downtown Manhattan on the 25th floor. And I was going to be making six fill figures. Your pay, it was going fill to be, your bank account yeah, with money. Absolutely. It was going to be beautiful because, I mean, I was, you know, clearly, I mean, it didn't take a freaking CEO of a Fortune 500 company to figure out this kid is the next freaking MVP of the earth, you know, <laughs> at least that's how, the delusion in my head. So, you know, when, in the doctor's opinion, when it talks about in full flight from reality, mm -hmm. yeah, there, no question, full flight from reality for sure. But um, I really believe that shit. I'm, I'm as ridiculous as it sounds. I believe that shit hook, line and sinker. And um, so the last year and a half to two years of my drinking, I came to with the con. I was like, this is not how my life was supposed to go. I'm not supposed to be living in my mom's house you know what? You are a worthless piece of shit. You and anybody who cares anything about you who would be a lot better off if you were dead. Hmm. I mean, you're contributing nothing to society. You are, you are taking up space that other good, decent human beings are, are, you know, could be occupying. You're breathing air that other good, decent people, you are, you are a waste. And, um, I'd jump out of bed and I'd run as fast as I could from that thought and just keep doing what I was doing. I was like a hamster on a wheel or it was like Groundhog Day. I, is, I can I relate no, to that. Yeah. No clue how to do years. anything different than, than the way I was living. It, no matter how desperately I wanted to do something different, didn't matter. I was stuck and I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand and appreciate what it meant for, you know, what alcoholism meant. I didn't understand that Bart, that's powerlessness over alcohol at that point in time. It took me a little while sober to, figure that right, out yeah. actually. Um, so when the cop put me in the back of that police car, um, it was like I'd been running. I'd been running from that thought. And all of a sudden, I'm back. it's like somebody slammed Bam. on the brakes. And I've heard it described before. It's like if I'm going around, you know, I'm flying through life in a station wagon at 90 mile an hour with, with all kinds of shit and trash and all my garbage, all the piece of shit, worthless things that I've done the harms that I've done to other people piled in the back. I'm in the front seat. All that shit's in the back. And the more shit that I do, it just I just toss it behind me. And the more shit to pile, well, when I got in the back of that police car, it's like, boom, the brakes slammed on and all that shit just came piling up in my lap. And it was like reality. And I mean, I was, I broke down in the back of that cop car and I was, I remember on the ride to jail, I, I, I specifically remember telling him like, you know, I don't know, man, whether you're sent from God to save my ass or whatever, but you know, 
because I didn't know what was going to change, but I knew something was going to have to change. I, you know, I knew that there were going to be some consequences for this. I had been running from that for a while. I didn't know how to not drink or not use drugs, but I knew that there were going to be some consequences. And sure enough, the state's initial plea was one to three years in the penitentiary. And like I've said before, I'd seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption, and I, you know, I, I could pretend to be a tough guy. But I knew when you go to penitentiary, they're like, there's yeah, some real, there's tough, real guys. tough guys. In yeah, there. real yeah. tough guys in there. And I, you know, I did not feel like I would fare well in that environment. Same here. And uh, so, I mean, that that terrified me. So that fear coupled with the fact that I really desperately wanted to change, but I did not believe that the change involved complete abstinence from booze and dope. I did not think that that life looked equally unappealing to me as well. Maybe not quite as unappealing, but it was, it didn't, I was like, life would be over if I can't drink or do drugs at all, life would be over. So, um, I didn't drink for a total of 37, 38 days from And I got arrested on November the 15th, 97. Didn't drink for a total of 97, 98 day. Uh, you know, I, it was 37 or 97. This was 1997. No, but you said, for a minute you said you, you didn't drink for about 30-something days and then you switched to 90-something No, it, it was in 1997. I didn't drink for about 37, 38 days from November the 15th until Christmas of that year. And what after I got arrested for a DUI, my mom put me, well, number one, my because the other part of that was my mom and her friend Angie and my grandparents, they were going to be waiting for me at the football game. I had no cell phone to call them and say, hey, just FYI, guys, I just got popped for another DUI. So I knew when I didn't show up to the football game, because I always went to my little brother's football games, particularly with this being a regional championship. So I knew here once again, because I knew that they were concerned about me and how I'd been living and my drinking. I mean, I was a freaking animal. And um, it, so I knew they were going to be, I knew they were going to be devastated or just terrified. I knew I was going to, it was going to be, a. I, I got kids now and I can't imagine yeah. the fear that I put my parents and my extended family through. So anyway, ended up back in jail. The, um, my dad, I called my dad over in Danville, Illinois, cause I didn't have a way of getting in touch with anybody else. My dad drove over from Danville. They wouldn't let me out that night because let's see, I got arrested. It was about six 30 in the evening. I blew a 0.22 and they said, well, if you're, you know, if we can get you below, you know, 0.1 by, midnight you know we can release you tonight or 11 o'clock so anyway they tested me again and no i was still well over so my dad drove over the next morning from danville and he bailed me out took me we were at some like little jim dandy restaurant in noblesville indiana i end up out in the parking lot puking up blood and i'm just i'm i'm a disaster i'm a mess and um my mom put me in touch with a friend of hers down here a guy named honest john and Honest John had been sober for about 12 years at that point. And he took me in my first AA meeting. And he told me what is still one of the most important things that needs to stay in my mind. Don't think, don't drink, don't smoke no dope and go to AA meetings. And that, that literal, well, it didn't immediately became my, didn't immediately become my mantra. Because I didn't, I went, he took me to four or five AA meetings. And at that last, that fourth or fifth meeting, I don't know what was said. It was at the Jeff Token Club. And I don't know what was said in that meeting, but I know what I heard. I heard a bunch of people bitching and moaning and whining and complaining about their problems. Hmm. And I just, I'm not this bad. I'm, you know, these people in AA, God bless them. I feel so sorry for them. They're so freaking pathetic. I mean, it's just, I, I am not 
this bad. And I, this is not, this is not me. I mean, I'm, I'm glad AA is here for them because God knows they look like they need it. Yeah. I mean, they are pathetic souls and it's tragic, but it ain't me. And so I didn't, I, I didn't, I stopped going to AA meetings and I didn't drink for a total 37, 38 days. And it was Christmas Eve. And by that time I had made the decision, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I mean, because my idea of an alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, if you're really an alcoholic, and if you don't drink, you will turn into a Tasmanian devil type character and you will start robbing liquor stores in order to get some whiskey and drink. That's, that's what a real alcoholic would have to do. And I wasn't doing that. So I thought, well, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. And uh, so Christmas Eve that night, my, and my mom had been telling me how proud she was of me and blah, 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 blah. And we went to the Christmas Eve service at Morton Church that night. And what I didn't tell her was earlier that night, I'd went up to Texas Roadhouse and I'd had a few drinks with dinner <laughs> after not having drinks for dinner. I think I had two or three drinks with dinner because I now I'm going to control my drinking. All right. I'm going to drink responsibly. Two or three drinks with dinner. I go back to my mom's house and uh, we're going to church service like the 10 or 11 o'clock service. And after we leave, she says, now, if it's OK with you, she said we don't have to. But I was going to, you know, are you OK if we stop at sneakers and have a drink with Angie? And I'm like, oh, yeah, mom, that'll be fine. I'm like, perfect. This is the perfect yeah, opportunity yeah, yeah, to break just... it to my mom that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm drinking again. Because she'd been saying, I'm so proud of you, so proud of you. So we get out of the car, and as we're walking in sneakers, and a mom, when we go in here, just so you know, I'm going to have one drink. And she said, oh, no. She said, and she starts getting these big tears around. She's like, no, we don't have to go in. I'm like, mom, relax. Don't make such a big deal out of it. It'll be okay. So we go into sneakers, and I have one drink. And we go home, and we celebrate Christmas the next day. And I don't know exactly over the next three weeks how much drinking I did, but I, it was some of the most miserable, not because of the volume I drank or how miser or how drunk I got. Cause I don't know that I got really that shit face drunk any much, if at all over the next three weeks. But what happened was I would have two or three drinks or four or five or six or whatever. And my mind would just start freaking like, dude, you're facing one to three years in the penitentiary. And here you are putting the same shit in your body that got you into all this trouble in the first place. You might as well just go turn yourself into the prison because you have lost your mind. Nobody, no normal, rational, level-headed, reasonable human being would be doing what you're doing, facing the consequences that you're facing. And I didn't realize this at the time, but that's a beautiful example of my step one powerlessness. Exactly. Um, you know, because here, I, you know, prior to this, I can blame a lot of the decisions, a lot of the stupid stuff that I did, the people that I, I can blame a lot of the, a lot of that on the fact I was drunk. Man, I would, I would have never, I wouldn't have put my hands on my mother if I hadn't been drunk. I would have never done that had I not been drunk. So I can blame a lot of the things that I did prior. It doesn't, make me, it doesn't mean I'm not responsible for those things. I'm still responsible for those things. But it doesn't mean that, that uh, but, but I can, you know, I had something to blame it on. Here I am, because that was how I made my decisions under the influence. Here I am. I haven't had anything to drink in 37, 38 days. And my mind tells me that, well, you can't possibly be an alcoholic. In spite of the fact that I'm 27 years old, five years out of college, just racked up my fourth DUI facing one to three years in the penitentiary. And, and I tell myself, it's again. okay to freaking have a drink. <laughs> the book says we call that plain insanity. Insane insanity. I mean, that is fucking insane. 
And so, you know, that's anytime I ever, so long story short, I heard a guy named Bob Olson talk about, uh, he's a speaker and he was one of the many speaker tapes that I listened to repeatedly early on in recovery. Speaker tape junkie over here too. Oh, oh yeah. And uh, I heard him talk about, you know, you need to, you need to always, you, you've got to have a solid step one. If you, if you're not, well, and the book talks about this too. You know, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics yep. for this is the first step in recovery. So we've got to have a solid foundation for, for our step one powerlessness. And for me, that's the best example now, because I got another one. There were plenty of times also in my drinking when I would come to on a Sunday after, a, I don't know, however many days run. And I would wake up just, I mean, with like the mother of all hangovers and say, you know what, I'm going to, I am still shocked to this day that my, none of my bodily functions or organs didn't shut down from the volume of Seagram's VO and other shit that I was putting in my body. Cause I really was somewhat convinced, man, at some point my body's, you know, I mean, a human body can't take <laughs> all this, you know? Um, and so there were plenty of mornings that I would come to and I would say, you know what? I'm not going to drink today. I'm, I'm going to give my body a break today. I'm yeah. just, I'm not going to drink. Take a day off. I'd be so hungover. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, I'd be sitting in Russia's tavern feeling twice as bad as I did when I came to that morning. And a little light would go off in my head that would say, you know, Bart, if you would just have one drink, it would take the edge off of this. If you would just have one and take the edge off of this. Man, I'd have that one drink, and the next thing I know, I'd be, boom, popping my head up off the bar top, looking up at the clock, and it's 9 o'clock at night, and I'd look around there, be Yvonne, and Yvonne be like, Bart, are you okay? And I'd be like, I, I had no idea what happened. And that's, you know, and I heard that same speaker that I was telling you about, our book is meant to be suggestive only, but it's the only suggestion yeah. we got. Another little nugget that he had, he had uh, mentioned at that time was, you know, I thought I just changed my mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I woke up that morning. I told myself I wasn't going to drink. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm going to have a drink. I just changed my mind. I didn't realize that, brother, that is your step one powerlessness over alcohol. Yeah, so there are, those you. are two very crystal clear examples and why I have no delusions whatsoever about the fact that I am an alcoholic. I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And those two things are the best examples I can come up with. Because I, I encourage everybody, get your examples, man. Yep. Hang you know, on know, to them. Know very, be crystal clear on your why. Those are, those are my why for sure. Um, so I didn't drink for that three weeks from Christmas. And, and I, I'd had an evaluation done on the, because between, in that 37, 38 days that I didn't drink, my mom and my grandfather had taken me up to Noblesville, Indiana, where I was facing these charges. And we had met with an attorney up there and he had taught Cause I said, look, I don't care what, I just want to stay out of jail. I just want to stay out of prison. And he said, I'm not making any promises. He said, but here are some things you can do to, you know, give me something to show somebody that, you know, give me some kind of shot. I'm not making any promises, but this might help. So, One of those suggestions was to have an evaluation done at their probation department and then do whatever the probation evaluator, because you're going to have to do this as part of the sentence anyway. So go over there and do what they tell you to do. So I'd went, I'd had this evaluation done um, by the probation department. This was around December 29th or 30th. 
like I said, I'd started drinking again on Christmas Eve. And when I went and had this evaluation done by the probation department, she asked me a full litany of questions about my drinking and drug history and my family history and the whole nine yards. And I was honest with her about everything, with the exception of the fact that I'd started drinking again on Christmas Eve. Other than that, I told her every all the drugs that I had done, how often I had done drugs, and she diagnosed me as chemically dependent, of course. But And she said, now, she said, here's what you need to do. You need to have an evaluation done by a treatment center down where you're from. And you, in the meantime, while you're waiting to get in to have that evaluation done at the treatment center, you need to go to one AA meeting a week. I'm like, oh, inside. I'm like, oh, no, not, no, don't send, I'm not, don't send me back there. No, not AA. Oh, God, no. I went to that place. It's horrible. I don't belong there. And that was, like I said, around the 29th or 30th of December. And she said, you know, one AA meeting a week. A week. Well, I'm still, you know, I still, hell, we left the probation department, stopped by the liquor store and got some beer. My little brother had given me a ride up there. And um, so we get back down here and I'm, I'm still drinking and uh, still hating my, I'm not enjoying my drinking at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's that saying, when you get to Alcoholics Anonymous, you may not have taken your last drink. But by God, you have enjoyed your last drink. Yeah. And I can certainly relate to that because that three weeks of drinking, I, I, I did not enjoy a single drink that I took during that three weeks. And um, we, uh, so I'm drinking and the days are ticking by and I don't want to go back to AA. I am not, no, I'm not going back. I can't go back to AA. No, no, not AA. January the 10th rolls around. I'm drinking. My mind is kicking my ass. It's telling me every day how insane I am that I've lost my mind and that I might as well go tell, turn myself into the prison. So every time I drink, all it's all the drinking is doing is amplifying that voice in my head, reinforcing that you've lost your fucking mind. Just go turn yourself into the prison, you fucking idiot, because you're gone, bro. You know, nobody would be doing what you're doing with what you got going on. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, it sucked. It sucked. It was miserable. And I'm, and, and like, you're supposed to be going to one, you can't even follow the most basic fucking instruction that that lady give you and you're still drinking. Just go to fucking prison, idiot. And it just, it sucked, dude. It sucked. And so January the 10th rolls around. Finally that night, I go to an AA meeting at the Jeff Token Club. And after the meeting, I was going out with a girl who's been a friend of mine forever. Went to Monon Station. I'm drinking Jack and Sevens Tall trying, trying desperately to catch a buzz and just doesn't, it's just not working. I'm trying to pretend like I'm having a good time while inside I'm fucking dying. Yeah. I'm like just miserable, 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 miserable. So the next morning I I get up and I go to the TP group at the Jeff Token Club. Sitting in that meeting, I distinctly remember I had two paths I could take. I could either really give this AA thing a shot, which I didn't, I had zero belief that AA would work, and I certainly did not want to go to AA. The other path was the Shawshank Redemption. And the only thing I can say is I, I, I did not want to do the Shawshank Redemption. So I. That was a certainty. Gave, yeah. So I gave, so I, so I literally, I just threw myself into AA. And I started going to AA meeting after AA meeting after AA meeting after AA meeting after AA. I mean, they talked about 90 meetings in 90 days, and, and I, I, sincerely don't I did not have a a sincere desire at that point to stay sober I had a sincere desire to stay out of the freaking Shawshank Redemption okay 
So I threw myself in so long, you know, when I hear these people, when I hear it said in meetings that, well, you got to do it for you. You got to do it for you. I'm one of those guys who's like, look, I don't give a shit why you do it. Just fucking do it. I am too. You know? So, because you know, for me, I had to act my way into recovery. You know, my thoughts, feelings, and beliefs, they were my disease. They were one and the same. And at that point, I was not healthy enough to separate my what was a real thought, feeling, and belief that was like reality and fact from what was fucking insanity and alcoholism. Yeah. So I needed to do as little thinking and feeling and believing as I possibly could. I needed to do a whole lot of fucking acting of stuff that it didn't matter whether I wanted to do it or not, whether I felt like it would work or not. I just needed to do it. It's like still today, doing the next right thing. Whether I want to do it or not, it's immaterial. Just do the next Just right thing. It. And so <clears throat> I acted my way in. You know, I, I <clears throat> kept coming to these meetings uh, that I didn't want to go to, that I didn't think would work. Um, you know, slowly but surely over time, it wasn't immediate. There wasn't any big flash of white light. Um, but, you know, over time, something started to change and I would say it pro well at the, the well let's just go with uh, you know they talked about getting a sponsor well I wasn't real big on getting a sponsor simply because I didn't think I was gonna be around you know I needed to get out of the freaking legal shit that I was in but I didn't think I was gonna be sticking around for an extended period of time so I didn't want to form a relationship with a sponsor that I was just you know that I knew You're I was wasting just gonna turn his my, time yeah, exactly so um, but I did end up getting a sponsor. Well, when I was two months sober, see, for the first two months, I'm coming to AA meetings all the time. And I'm, I'm, my mind, my alcoholism is picking out. I don't think I was consciously doing this, but the disease of alcoholism, it freaking owned me. It, it owned my thoughts. It owned everything about me. If, it if hijacks it your operating yeah. system, just like a virus in a computer and it takes over. If it didn't want me to believe something, I didn't get to believe it, you know? So, um, for the first two months I'm coming around, my mind is picking out everything. You know, I hadn't lost a job. I hadn't lost a wife. I hadn't lost a home. I hadn't lost a car. I hadn't lost the love of my children. I hadn't lost any of that stuff. Now, never mind the fact that I'd never accumulated any of that shit because I was, a, you know, living at home in my mommy's basement. I was way too wasted. I never got out of the starting gate, man. I never got off the freaking umbilical cord, basically. If it hadn't been for my mommy, I'd have been, you know, homeless, no question about it. So, um, but my mind was picking out everything that didn't apply that the speakers were saying. So therefore I couldn't possibly All the be an alcoholic. And when I was two months sober, I went over to a meeting at the ice house and I heard uh, Don M speak, who's my sponsor today. And uh, for the first time in my life, this guy is like standing, uh, this ice house was real smoky and it was dark. And I didn't know Don M from freaking Jesus, quite frankly. And I'm sitting in the back and it's like, this dude is freaking throwing darts and just nailing me. I mean, just bullseye after bullseye after bullseye. You know, he's talking about things like, you know, um, I'm perfectly capable of being too smart for something and too dumb for the same thing at the same time. Um, I am... My God, you people would never understand how I feel things so much more deeply than other people feel them. I see things just a little bit more clearly 
than average folks see things. It's pointless for me to try and explain this to you folks because you're simple-minded. You couldn't possibly understand this complicated enigma, the uniqueness that I have just been cursed with. You know, God has just given me this, this, this is my cross to bear, if you will. And it's pointless to try and explain it to you because you're so simple-minded. <laughs> the dude is just nailing me. He's describing me better than I could have described myself at the time. You know, that, uh, that ego disorder. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority yep. complex. Yep. I mean, and all these, he's like smacking me up against the head with a baseball bat, just bam, yeah. bam, bam. And so it's like some lights are coming on. And that was really the first time I can remember something in AA like really rang my bell. And um, I didn't, there certainly wasn't any immediate, oh, I'm home kind of thing. I still didn't like AA, didn't really feel like I belong. I certainly didn't think AA was going to work for me. Uh, But I kept coming every day, every day. You know, they, they talk about 90 meetings in 90 days. I easily, in my first year, probably my first two years of sobriety, uh, but definitely in my first six months, I can say I averaged more than a meeting a day with no question about it. Uh, my first year, I averaged probably my first two years, I averaged a meeting a day with the exception of the 60 days I did end up having to do in jail when I was about eight or nine months sober. But nevertheless, <coughs> when I was um, when I was I did get a guy to be my sponsor uh, and he was picking me up. Um, he was picking me up at my mom's house and he was taking me to his house in Sellersburg. We would go in his basement. We would read out of the big book. We even got up to the point of where we uh, got on our knees at his kitchen table, held hands, and recited the words that are the third step prayer. Uh, so he was sponsoring me exactly the same way I sponsor guys now. But when, you know, and after we did the third step prayer, he said, you know, the book's very clear. He says, next, we launched out on a course of rigorous action, which many of us had never attempted. And, and I balked. I ended up staying up all night one night because uh, at that time I was a server in a restaurant. He was a roofer. So he got up at the crack of dawn. I usually didn't go to bed until late. So I wanted to do the next right. I wanted to do the honorable thing. I wanted to tell him he couldn't be my sponsor like a man would do. And so I stayed up all night one night so I'd be awake when he got up at 6 a.m. So I could call him and let him know he couldn't be my sponsor anymore because he was pushing me too hard. So I didn't have that was I, I was probably around three or four months sober at that point in time. And uh, so from three or four months sober until I was about eight months sober, I didn't have a sponsor. I was going to meetings every day. Um, I was listening. I was starting to listen to a lot of AA speaker tapes at that time. Hell, the stuff's all over the Internet now. But at this point in 1998, uh, there there wasn't much of an Internet. Uh, So you're getting real tapes. Cassette tapes. Old school, baby. Yeah. And um, so I... um, Still, man, my mind is kicking my ass at different times. When I was five and a half months sober, I made up my mind that as soon as I got my six-month ship, I was going to get drunk because AA was not working for me. (laughs) Still, I'm five and a half months sober, which is longer than I have been sober since the first time I got drunk when I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old. I'm five and a half months sober, and my mind says, well, we might as well get drunk because AA's not, <laughs> not working for us. Just as a perfect example of how feeling-driven I am. You know, I mean, I think how I feel on any given day is the center of the universe. I mean, my God, I've heard my sponsors say this, so I'm stealing it from him, but 
my God, we can't have little Bartley Wayne running around this planet not feeling good. For heaven's sakes, that would just be the greatest tragedy known to mankind. That'd be just terrible. We can't have little Bartley Wayne running around not feeling good. Jeez. For those folks' information out there, you can hear the gentleman he's talking about all over the place, including this podcast, because uh, Don's been at that side of the table telling his story here. Yeah, and uh, wow, how how lucky I am to have that guy in my life. Yeah, to talk about God doing for me what I could do, and that's I'll get to that here in just a second. Um, because you know what ended up, I made up my mind at five and a half months sober. So I don't know why I wanted to wait till I got my six month chip. I just seemed to be like some kind of milestone I need to achieve or whatever. Um, I guess maybe I thought if I got my six month chip, then I couldn't, that was no further proof. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I don't know, dude. It was just, you know, I'm, I'm still insane, still insane. I, you know, I've heard a guy Burns B talk about, you know, for the first, if you're an alcoholic addict of my type for the first two years, your brain's basically sawdust. Yeah. You know, you better, best advice we can give you is don't do a whole lot of thinking, feeling, or believing because that shit's insanity. Yeah. You know, if you're an alcoholic addict of my type, your shit is owned by that insanity still. So the best thing you can do is talk to other people and do what they tell you to do until you can get healthy enough to have some rational, sane thoughts. Because it does talk about, you know, when we get to a point where we've advanced in the steps enough, you know, our, our thinking gets straightened out to some degree. So anyway... Um, the next thing I remember after I made up that decision to get drunk when I was five and a half months sober, next thing I remember was about three weeks after I got my six month chip, I'm sitting around at Hooters with a buddy of mine, Neil M who Neil is dear friend, been in and out of the program, dear friend, friends with his whole family. Just, I mean, people that I love his mom, his mom, Martha, she's passed now, but Martha was sober for 20 plus years when she passed away in AA and she was like a second mom to me even before I got to AA. Her hmm. her youngest son and I were best friends in high school and roommates in college. So when I got to AA, Martha was a friendly face and Martha would always be the one to tell me it's okay. She would reassure me in a very motherly way. Like when I, when the guy who was pushing me so hard to do my fourth step, I, you know, she'd say, Bart, it's okay. And bless her heart. I needed her. I needed somebody yeah. to give me, to, to be that motherly figure and not be uh, you know, push me away, so to speak. Yeah. It's the quickest way to get me to run yeah. start yeah. pushing. So, uh, but Neil was, was one of Martha's other sons and Neil and I, uh, Neil had been to prison and, um, you know, he had been in AA and he had had some sobriety. And so he had, he had had some exposure. And I remember him and I were sitting at Hooters and, uh, he, uh, you know, he said, Bart, well, he said, I think I'm done. <laughs> he said, I mean, I really, I told him, I was like, Neil, you know what, buddy? I said, I'm not going to drink today. But I just don't think I'm done. I just, you know, I'm not going to drink today. And hell, we may be sitting around here 10 years from now and I may not have had a drink, but I don't feel like I'm done. And so, you know, that and that was like I was six months and three weeks sober, you know. So that that's just further example of one day at a time. You know, another yeah. example of one day at a time is I remember I had started bartending again at some point in my first year of sobriety, you know, I was a server at Buckhead's and I had started bartending again. And, um, you know, I'd go to these AA meetings and I'd hear people talk, well, you keep going to the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. You right. keep going to the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. Keep going to the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. And so I was scared to like actually say anything to anybody about this, but I had this, this, I thought, oh my God, I, you know, I'm putting my sobriety in danger at some point in the future because I'm, because of my job. Well, I like my job. I make decent money doing my job. I'm financially supporting myself because I did move out of my mommy's basement when I was about two years sober and got a little one-bedroom apartment. 
that was another God incidence thing that was just, wow, kind of mind-blowing. But nevertheless, so I've been living on my own for a little bit and been financially responsible. And I didn't want to quit my job. I liked doing my job. And I there was at no point in doing my job did I like have any overwhelming urges or cravings that, oh my God, I'm behind the bar. I got to have some whiskey. You know, I wasn't about to turn into a Tasmanian devil, as I mentioned before. So, um, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to be honest. You know, I got to be honest, got to be honest. And, um, so I thought, well, you know what? It just got to a point in my head where I'm like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to go into these people in AA and I'm going to tell them what's going on in my head about this fear I have that I'm putting my sobriety in danger at some point in the future. I'm going to talk about it. And God damn it, God, I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. I will do whatever they tell me to do, God. Because I knew they were going to tell me to quit my job. So I was just, I was finally at a point where, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to tell them they're going to tell me to quit my job and I'm just going to quit my job. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to quit my job. And, um, I go in after I got off work one night and it was Stanley and Sam Sebastian, a couple old timers who've since passed away. And, um, I go in and those guys were sitting at the table where they regularly were sitting. And, uh, I said, you know, you guys, I got something going on. They're like, well, what's going on, Bart? I said, well, you guys, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm bartending and I'm serving and I'm working in a restaurant business and I'm just terrified. I'm putting my sobriety in danger at some point in the future. And I'm just, you know, I'm just, I don't know what to do. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, Bart. Time out. Time out. Now, 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 now tell us again what, what's going on. Well, you know, I'm bartending and I'm, I'm serving and I'm working around alcohol and I'm just, uh, you know, I keep coming to these meetings and they keep talking about if you keep going to the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut and Freedom putting my sobriety in danger at some point in the future. And they're like, whoa, 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 Bart. And I'm like, here it comes. They're going to tell me to quit my job. Okay, I'm going to quit my fucking job. Just go ahead and tell me. You know, I, this is what's going on in my head. And uh, they're like, well, Bart, what did what you do today? When you, I said, well, I woke up and I came to the lunch bunch. And, you know, I don't know what I did this afternoon. But, I, you know, I, I woke up and I prayed and I, you know, to whatever. And went to a meeting at lunchtime. And then I went to work. And now I'm coming to a meeting at night. And they're like, okay. All right, so that's that's what you did today, and have you been doing basically similar to that since? Well, yeah, but I'm just I'm terrified. I'm putting my sobriety in danger at some point in the future, and you know they keep coming to the barbershop. You're gonna get a haircut, and, blah, blah, blah. and they're like Bart, whoa, 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 Bart, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. We do one day at a time. Now we don't know, but there's a good chance that if you do tomorrow what you did today, you might stay sober tomorrow. But Bart, we don't, we do one day at a time. We don't do at some point in the future in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yep. We do today. Blew my fucking mind. Because I knew when it, going into that, Dan, I knew these guys were going to tell me to quit my job. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. That was why I was so terrified of bringing it up to uh, in that situation. Because I knew they were going to tell me to quit my job. And they didn't. So two variable, very valuable lessons that I learned where anytime I am absolutely positive of one certain outcome, I can look back on that and say, Bart, you remember when you were absolutely certain and positive that, that was going to be the outcome of that? Yeah. Didn't turn out so well, or didn't turn out that way, did it, buddy? So I got to always keep myself in check anytime I'm absolutely certain of anything. So that's number one. And the other thing is one day at a time, man. One day at a time. Yep. And yoga is a good example of that. You know, I don't know if I'm going to do yoga tomorrow at six or seven. I'm, I'm scheduled to be there at six or seven tomorrow morning, but I don't know if I'm going to do it or not. You know, I, I did it today. Yep. I did it today. We'll see. We'll see where I'm at tomorrow. Come 6 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Living one day at a time can drive some people nuts in your <coughs> life. I can ask some people around me. They're like, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? Don't know. 
<laughs> my wife in particular. I got to play in a little, but right. and you do have to, you know, you can't just set everything down, obviously. But there is a way to operate like that and to like to do this thing. And you're right, that is yeah. a, this key to really, and it's not just alcoholism, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's a key to life. I agree wholeheartedly. Agree wholeheartedly. So um, that was, you know, I talked about, you know, that was, I guess, a little over six months, and. Um, you know, I had heard, by this time I'm listening to a lot of tapes and whatnot, and I heard Don talk, and Don went to the Calm Down group, which is still his home group, and so I went to that meeting, and, but I don't know that I went to that meeting real regular at that point, because that would have been an easy opportunity to ask him to be my sponsor, because I'd been listening to his tapes, and so I had in my, in my mind that, you know, I'd really like, because I'm sponsorless at this point, because I'd fired that first sponsor. Um... I'm working at a little place called the Inn on Spring in addition to Buckhead's. Uh, I work the lunch shift at the Inn on Spring, and then I go to Buckhead's in the evening usually. Well, around August of 98, I'm, you know, what, eight months sober, somewhere around in there. I'm working my lunch shift, and all of a sudden, Don and his law partner come in for lunch. Don doesn't know me from Adam. I know him, obviously. Because he was the one who had told the story at two months sober that had rang my bell. Yeah. And I had seen him periodically at the Calm Down Group. And I'd been listening to his tape. So he was, you know, somewhat deified in my yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. I had um, the same kind of experience. I got a story about Donald Sindler. So he comes in. I'm like, oh, wow. I, I don't wait on him. One of the other servers waited on him. But as he got up to leave and was walking out the front door, I got up the courage to go up and say, hey, I'm Bart. I'm about eight months sober. I heard you talk when I was a couple months sober. And I'd love to hear you talk again if you're going to be talking around town anytime soon. And he said, well, he said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to, I'm talking out at Branchville, the prison. I'm talking out at Branchville at the end of September. If you want to ride along with me, you're more than welcome to. Literally, Dan, that, that, that encounter that day, that encounter, I, I believe, has literally changed the trajectory of the last 21 plus years shit, of my man. life. Yeah. Because it, it was turns just my crank. that chance freaking encounter. God put him and I right in that same place. I had no clue it was going to happen. Because, you know, I ended up uh, giving him my information and ended up riding out to Branchville with him. And on the way out to Branchville, you know, I told him, like, well, Don, you know, um, Here's kind of where I am. I, you know, I'm I really, because by this point, I liked what I saw in AA. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to stay sober, um, but I wanted, I'd gotten enough where I, I wanted to stay sober because I'd had some moments, you know, like people were in, around the club. They were inviting me to play nickel dime quarter poker on Friday and Saturday nights. And we were going to Denny's after we'd play poker and we'd eat and we'd talk and, and like people were laughing, you know, they were telling stories and, and there was like, there was like real shit, man. Like for the first time, you know, I didn't have to like pretend to be anything and they weren't pretending to be anything. There wasn't any, you know, like in the whole, in the, in the bar room. And, you know, it's like, everybody's trying to pretend to, to be something they're not. And in this environment, it was just, it was just freaking people being people, yeah, man. People and take like off their masks. Being, and yeah. Man. And, uh, and they were telling stories that I could identify with and we could laugh about shit that it was just, I was connecting with folks. That's and, um, yeah. and, and I was having 
of all things, I was freaking having fun being sober when that would have been the furthest thing from my mind when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was like, I could not, I was having a hard time comprehending that, holy shit, that shit about not being able to have fun sober is bullshit. I was wrong there too. Yeah. And this is like, this is like real fun. I mean, this is like, I laugh from a place inside me that I have never laughed before. And, um, you know, and I was connecting with people and it was just, you know, so I had that going on as well. So I, you know, and I've been going to a meetings averaging more than one a day during this time. So I'm getting a lot of stuff, but I, you know, I still, you know, my mind is still riddled with alcoholism to a degree, but I, I wanted what these folks had. And in particular, I wanted what Don had because I'd been listening to his tapes as well. And, um, so on the way out to Branchville, you know, I told him, I was like, well, I said, you know, I really want what this, you know, I really want to be what the, what it talks about. You know, I want to be a maximum service to God and the people about me, but you know, I'm really struggling with this whole four step thing. I'd fired this sponsor before cause he was pushing me too hard when I was like three months sober. And, uh, but I really want to, he said, well, Bart, he said, the way we become fit to be of maximum service to God and the people about us is we've got to gain the experience of going through the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and we've got to do eight and nine. He said, we've got to take the actions that are involved with those steps in order to gain the experience so we have something to share with somebody else. That's what, that's what puts us in a position to allow God to, for us to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And so um, when we got back, I asked him if he would be my sponsor, and he, he obliged. And then it wasn't too long after that where I ended up having to go do my, the attorney up in Indy. He called me. He said, he said the best I'm going to be able to get you he said, is four months. You're going to have to do two. So you're going to have to do 60 days in jail. He said, you're going to do six months home incarceration. Um, and that's, he said, that's about, he said, that's the best plea I can get you at this point. And so I'm like, and, and I'd had enough of AA at that point, And I had enough of a relationship with a God of my understanding at that point where I was like, I'd, I'd kind of ceased fighting anything or anybody. Um, so I was like, I was like, okay, you know, God, hell, when I looked back on my past and all the times that I had drank and drove in a blackout and all the times that I had put myself directly in harm's way. To where I really, you know, there are a lot of people who were in exactly similar circumstances, the circumstances I put myself in regularly, who are no longer with us. Yeah. And that that had become real to me. I was like, dude, you are like, you can't, I'm not sure you can grasp how fortunate you are to be alive, having done the things that you've done. And so when the attorney, so that was the perspective I had when the attorney said, you know, you're going to have to go do a couple months in jail. It was like, hey, you know, God brought me this far, you know, okay, God's got this. I wasn't thrilled about it, but it was far from the worst that could have happened. So <coughs> I went and, uh, I, you know, I did the 60 days in jail. I still, and, and when I was in jail, I actually did my inventory. The, oh, did you? There was, well... There was a meeting, well, because I had met with Don, but we hadn't had time to get together and go over the whole... Was up in Indy, up in Marion County? Or no, well, where? that was where I did, yeah, that, in, no, in Noblesville. In Hamilton County was Hamilton. where I did my, uh, did ended up doing the 60 days. And the meeting that the, the guy, there was an outside meeting that was being brought in once a week when I was in jail. And when I was up there, those guys, I told them where I was at. And they're like, what do you mean you haven't done inventory yet? 
here's a guide, damn it. Yeah, do you your ain't inventory. got nothing else yeah. to do, brother. So, so they're like, <laughs> it's a good time so, to do it. So yeah, so they gave me the guide, the Joe and Charlie guide. Uh-huh. And so that's how I did my first inventory was with the Joe and Charlie guide. And I sent it to Dawn because I didn't want it hanging around in the pod and cell block there. <laughs> and so I sent it to Dawn. And, uh, you know, the other thing that was really cool about that 60 days, I had made connections with a lot of people and there were, I got some good people in my life, even from my drinking. Uh, but I'd made some connections with some people in Alcoholics Anonymous and the guys in that, in the, in, in the cell block with me, they got quite jealous at the volume of mail. <laughs> I was, Cause I was, I mean, I got at least one, if not two pieces of mail every day, that 60 yeah. days that I was in jail, whether it was from my family or from somebody in AA, uh, yeah. it was just, um, it, it, it was, it, it was remarkable. I that was, is, uh, yeah you know, very, very blessed, but it was because I was doing the next right thing. You know, it was, I, I sincerely believe, you know, man, when I started doing the next right thing and just trying to do this God's way instead of my way, God, God will open the doors. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be the way I want it to be. You know, like I could have easily, when I found out I was going to have to go do fucking two months in jail, there are any number of people who may have looked and said, you got to be shitting me. I've stayed sober for the last eight or nine fucking months. So now you're going to send me to fucking jail for two months. God, what kind of bullshit is this? I did. That was not my perspective at all. You know, I, I had, I guess AA had given me enough humility at that point to understand just how freaking lucky and blessed I was. And, uh, so I, uh, I did, and, and I got an opportunity to actually talk to, I don't know what's happened to him since, but there were a couple of guys that I met in jail, you know, who we would read the big book some together. Um, like I said, don't know what happened to those guys. But then, so I sent the inventory to Don. When I got out of jail, it was shortly before Christmas of 1998. Um, I celebrated my year on January the 11th of 1999. Uh, right after that, Don and I were in the back room at the Jeff Token Club doing my fifth step. And um, like I mentioned earlier, um, I was scared not to tell him everything when mm-hmm. I did my fifth step. Uh, I told him about the shitty things, the piece of shit, worthless human being that I was and how I had treated some people terribly. Um, I told him about some sick sex stuff that had created some shame and guilt that I had been carrying around with me from uh, you know, my adolescence. Uh, and I found that that's damn near universal you know with the guys that i've sponsored that i've heard fifth steps from um it's just that's i thought i was you know unique and different and the reality is is we pretty much all have that shit yeah the two words me too yeah you know there's a whole movement out there but you know i find myself saying that in fifth steps all the time me too brother so um then six and seven, I think, are the two of the most underrated steps in the book. And that there are no two steps that I have benefited more from sponsorship than those two steps. Uh, you know, I don't want to give you my sponsor's whole story, but my sponsor's experience with steps six and seven, he basically, after he did his fifth step, he formed a picture of what he thought a spiritual dawn ought to look like. And I could have seen myself falling into that exact same trap had it not been, you know, for the first nine years of his sobriety, things were great. He was a conference speaker and it was wonderful, but financial chaos and relationships with the opposite sex like they killed him. And he talks about, you know, the experience that he had when he was nine years sober and where step six and seven became real to him. 
you know, because it's not, you know, there's nothing in it. I don't, I don't go to work <laughs> on my character defects. There's, I don't think there's anything in there that says I go to work on my character defects. Yeah, it triggers you me know. whenever I hear people say they're working on that. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I'm you know, incapable I, of working on my character defects. You yeah, know, that's not I, what this thing tells me. It I, says I can't do it. Yeah, I mean, it says it, 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 it asks God to remove those defects of my character which stand in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. Right. And I don't know which ones they are. I don't know which, like, I mean, in Don's experience, those character defects and the things he talks about, I have found his experience with step six and seven remarkably useful to me to not fall in the same trap of forming a picture of what I think a spiritual Bart ought to look like and then trying to become, because that's just another self-determined objective. Yeah. That's just me trying to accomplish something that I want to achieve for me. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, so step six and seven really kind of set me free. You know, when I get up in the morning and, for the last couple of years, one of the great blessings in my sobriety is me and my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, we say a third step prayer together mm. before she gets on the bus to go to school. And I, I mean, I love doing it. And she'll yeah. remind me on, you know, it's dead time to pray. We did it this morning. And so that's part of my morning ritual. And, um, you know, when I, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. That means whatever happens to me, after I say that prayer, Whatever happens to me, whatever befalls me, that's that's God, that's experience I'm getting for God to use, make me of use to either bring me closer to God or give me something God wants me to have so I can be a service to somebody else. The next part of this is relieve me of the bondage of self. My bondage of self is the self-determined objective of what I think a spiritual bard ought to look like. I got to let go of that. Just let it go. Just be what I'm supposed to be in the moment because there's been times that you know, I've, I've done or said stuff that's just stupid to my wife, for example, that I have to make amends for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because also that kind of stuff, because my God, if I was walking around this world and, and I thought I was being so perfect all the time, can you imagine what a freaking egomaniacal son of a bitch I'd be? Yeah. You know, I mean, on a real regular basis, I get the opportunity to recognize how imperfect <laughs> Yeah, I am. I agree. Yeah. And uh, so, it, I mean, it, it keeps me, it keeps me right sized, if you will. So um, greatly benefited from Don's experience with uh, six and seven. Um, I don't have any preconceived ideas of who or what I'm supposed to be for any long term. You know, I hope I stay sober. Uh, that's, that's one thing I certainly hope. And I do believe that if I follow those instructions and if I will continue to follow those instructions on a one day at a time basis, just on a one day at a time basis that I will stay sober, but I, you know, I, I only get that today. Um, then, um, steps eight and nine, uh, <laughs> thank God for sponsorship on steps eight and nine. I had, uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh if somebody, I'll, I'll give you, I owed a lot of money. You know, I owed somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, I owed my mom just one example, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars on a home equity line that she had taken out. Uh, it took me about seven or eight years to pay that money back. I've, I've paid that money back. Huge piece of what I drug in here was financial wreckage. Yeah. That was the one, hardest one to, yeah. I'm still working on it. I'm five years. I'm still working on it. So it, it took me seven or eight years to pay that money back to my mom. I had student loans. My student loans have since been paid off. Uh, you know, my dad had helped me. My dad loaned me some money to help buy a condo a, not too long after I'd gotten sober. I paid my dad back that money. Um, 
So I, you know, all my financial amends, I don't owe anybody any money that I'm aware of. Hmm. There are some amends that fall into the category of except when to do so would injure them or others. Mm-hmm. That uh, I, you know, I recently had uh, a situation uh, and I talked to Don about it, and um, and I'm I'm not in a position to to do anything about it without potentially causing. And I'm I'm fucking 22 years sober, man, yeah. and still you know got some wreckage in my past. Uh, I. I that's that's one you know I, I wish i could change some of the shitty stuff that i did to people that's definitely an area where uh you know a sponsorship is just vital to me get to go i don't care in my friends what's happened is it went from this like kind of this put him on a pedestal thing which i needed early on because that way i would listen to him <laughs> uh if i thought he was less than me or something i don't think i'd taken his advice uh, but it's evened out now, man. And, and my sponsor and I are our best friends today. You know, we're, we're just close and we lead, we were in each other's lives, but you know, he can, what he's great at is putting on the sponsor hat at a drop of a dime, you know? And when Dan says something kind of goofy, cause I can just be free with him, you know, and I don't have to guard my stuff. Like I can't, you know, tell him things or can't, I have to be something else. I don't have to do that with this guy, you know, and he'll talk to me when I'm doing that. And then the other thing, like you said, you know, I, I tell, I say this and it ain't far from the truth. If I'm doing anything, if I'm making any decisions much more important than going to buy new underwear, I'm talking to my sponsor about it because <laughs> yeah. I just don't know still, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and he'll help me see those things. And just like what made me think of that is like that, those amend kind of things where, you know, I don't know the answers of those things, man. I need some help. Yeah. I need somebody else to, to got, help guide me and talk and, and, and work those things out because I will be inclined to think I need to go fix that. And in, in, in the meantime, what I do is end up causing, <laughs> making it worse. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've made the amends, all the amends that I can make uh, in, in regards to steps eight and nine. And then so with, with 10, 11 and 12, for the first eight years of my sobriety, um, I would fall asleep listening to an AA tape or CD every night. Um, and I've, you know... Guys like Bob Olson, Don Pritz, uh, I think it's okay to use their last names on this. Um, I hear most of them. You, that's another kind of place. You know, if they, if I've heard them say their name on a tape, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm okay. <laughs> Ken, Ken Devaney, uh, you know, of course, my sponsor, Don M. Um, Who was the Nashville speaker you were talking about earlier? Uh, um, Steve Lee, not Scott, Scott Lee. Lee. Not Steve Lee. Steve Lee. Yeah, different guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neat, neat. Listen to his tape. He's got some good stuff. Yeah. It, uh, so anyway, um, steps 10, 11, and 12. Now, what I became really good at, and I'm still pretty good at today, is, is you know, pages 86 through 88, where it says, on awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. Let it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. And then I lay there and I think about what I got going on during the day. Uh, make a little outline in my mind. If I need to check my calendar on my phone, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then I usually conclude that period of meditation with a prayer that I be shown all through the day what my next step is to be, that I be given whatever I need to take care of any problems. And we ask especially for freedom from self-will. And I'm pretty good about that. Over the last, you know, 22 years, I, I, I'd probably give myself a B plus, A minus on, on doing that. Um <laughs> After the morning ritual, it gets a little more spotty. 
<laughs> you know, because then it says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful. And to, and to me, frankly, that's where the juice of the, of, of the program Alcoholics Anonymous is found is, is in that as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. You flip it over the next page, it tells us, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be, you know. And so what I inevitably have found is if I will remember to do that, if I'm walking through my day and I get agitated or doubtful, whether it's a great big deal or a little small deal, it just agitates me or makes me doubtful or whatever, if I would now to some degree, uh, in some situations, I almost do it automatically, mm -hmm. you know, without because I've Becomes practiced a working it. part yeah. of the mind. Yeah. So but then then there are times when, you know, it becomes clear. OK, I become extremely cognizant and aware. OK, I need to pause because I'm agitated or yeah. doubtful. God, what's the next right thought or action? Always, 100% of the time, the next right thing is hit your knees and do a third step prayer. Hmm. Because when I hit my knees and do a third step prayer, God, I offer myself to thee. Oh, to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Oh, relieve me of the bondage of self. Oh, and by that point, by that, dude, I don't even get through, I don't even get through a third step prayer ever. If I'm going through the day and I pause when agitated or doubtful, and if I hit my knees and I do, and I remember the third step prayer to say to myself, I'm like, Bart, you dumbass. You belong to God, buddy. <laughs> it's isn't about you. AA's taught me what I believe to be the meaning of life. I, I have no, you know, I remember when I was drinking or drugging or doing LSD or mushrooms or cocaine or pot or whatever the case may be. You know, you'd sit around, you'd come, oh man, yeah. what is this really all about, man? Why are we all here, man? And, you know, AA has answered that question. AA answered that question relatively early for me. I know, the meaning of life, I know exactly why I'm here. I'm here for a combination of two reasons. One is to strengthen my relationship and dependence upon God as I understand God. And the other is to give me whatever experience God wants me to have so I can be a service to another human being. It's just that simple for me. So, you know, for the first 27 years of my life, I lived my life trying to snatch everything I could get out of this for me. Because God knows I knew what I thought was best for me or I knew what was going to make me happy. And for the love of God, making me happy was shit. That was the most important thing on the planet, for yeah. God's sakes. Not just for me, but shit for you. You yeah. ought to be wanting to make me happy. And you and you and you, doesn't everybody know? I mean, the shit revolves around me. And that's where all the pain and the emptiness originates. Mm -hmm. So what I have found is, is by having that relationship with God and, and trying to be what God would have me be and trying to be a service. That's where the real, that's where the real like peace, serenity, joy, that's where the real good stuff comes from. Uh, not that I always want to do it. Don't get me wrong. I, Cause I don't, you know, I'm not built that way. So to speak, it's a, it's a struggle still for me to an extent. It's a little bit easier because I've ceased fighting anything for the most part. And I understand my role is to grow closer to God and get whatever experience God wants me to have to be a service to another human being. So therefore my, my resistance to the stuff is much less because yeah. I know I'm going to do it God's way anyway. <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of point in fighting or arguing about it anymore. I just, the sooner that I say, okay, God, okay, okay. I get it. I get it. Get it. Uncle, uncle. Yeah. And I just do it God's way. The easier it's going to be on me. So, um, that's, uh, 
so that's kind of how, because here's where I said, you know, I give myself maybe a C, C minus on pausing when I'm agitated or doubtful. Sometimes I just react and I just, I'm human, yeah. you know, and, and we get to be, I'm reminded that I'm never going to be perfect at this stuff, you know? So, yeah. so I believe the bottom of page 87 is, is, is you're no longer aiming at St. Bart up on the wall. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the bottom of page 87 is my stark reminder of how imperfect I am on a regular basis. And then, hell, the top of page 86, when we retire at night. Now, here's my experience, because I, I, maybe this is just an excuse. But I'm not real good at when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. But, but what I have found is if I'm doing the first half of, if I'm doing the morning meditation, and if I'm pausing, if I'm making amends quickly, if I need to, as I go throughout the day, you know, I, I don't really have anything bothering me at night. So it's really been a rare occasion over the last 22 plus years that I've got something. Now, so, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm human. It comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I don't there like are I have things. to do some kind of nightly deal where I sit down and have to like inventory yeah. my day. It's just not needed necessary. I, yeah. I just, you know, so, so I'm not the best at following those instructions as rigorously at the top of page 86 with regards to constructively reviewing my day, yeah. you know, but I, I do make amends if I need to, where I can, Yep. as I uh, go, simply, as we go along. It's yeah. And it's not because I'm a great guy. It's because I'm still a feel good junkie. And if I've got something floating around in me that I've done wrong, that I owe an amends to somebody yeah. for that, I know I'm going to make an amends for anyway, in order for me to attain feeling good about myself hmm. again, I got to make that yeah. <laughs> before yeah. I can feel good again. So it's not about me really. It's not about me really being a good guy and really wanting to set things right. It's really about me wanting to feel good, uh, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, that's just, that's the truth. That's as yeah. dark as I can put it out there. And I then, just have this motive where I just want to operate on that plane. You know, I want to, you know, and I get, I, I get with you like that. Cause I don't like the yucky, you know, and I never really thought about that. I don't like the yucky. So I want to get that. And I have a tool that'll help me do that. And so I employ it as I go through the day. Uh, but that's interesting. Yeah, it's another, you know, because this whole thing from back then was this need to change the way I feel. You know, that's why I was doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the way I felt. This made me feel better. I did it, you know. And even when it wasn't working, I couldn't by that point, you'd cross that line like you talked about. And, I, and I'm still trying to get it to make it work and do make me change the way I feel. And I find myself today, you know, that is still a primary motive in my life is to uh, when I, when Dan don't feel good, I'm looking for something to make me feel good. Whether if it's a pizza yeah. or a female or a, a whatever it is. Right. So, you know, with uh, then leading into step 12, um, having had a spiritual awakening and I, somebody emphasized this to me and I've, like to emphasize it as well, but having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, not as a result of these steps, because that the result as and these the, steps, <laughs> the result of these steps. So in other words, if you want a spiritual awakening, the way to get the spiritual awakening as described in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous is through these steps. There's not some other, you know, Loophole it's not just if I don't drink or use drugs one day at a time, some kind of spiritual awakening happens as a result of osmosis. No yeah. bullshit. Yeah. It don't go down like that in the context of Alcoholics Anonymous and where I don't I drink, from. don't drug, go to meetings. Yeah, it don't work like that. Work so, um, 
so that's my thing with with and you know sponsoring guys today you know one of the one of the great i guess privileges if you will is is i get to be you know god has has given me whatever message i'm going to carry and you know it's like i'm not responsible for delivering the message because i you know there have been far, 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 far more guys who have asked me to be their sponsor over the last 22 years that I have absolutely no clue what has happened to them or what they're doing now or, or anything of that nature. There's a handful of them that I'm still in touch with who I know who are still sober and a couple who I'm actively working with through the steps right now. But it's not, you know, and, and I like, I've gotten so many things from my sponsor and th this is one of them as well is that you know, thank God I'm not responsible for delivering the message. I'm responsible for carrying it, you know, and, and the guys that I sponsor who are doing extremely well, um, I don't really think, I don't take any credit for that. I don't feel any credit for that. Uh, because if I start feeling that somehow uh, this guy or that guy that, oh yeah, yeah, I'm their sponsor. Yeah, yeah that's, because uh, if, if, if I start taking credit for their sobriety or how well they're doing, that means the guy that I sponsored who died in a fire because of a drug deal gone bad that basically got murdered, uh, I need to take my, my responsibility in that deal as well. And yeah. I, I don't, you know. I I'm only going to take credit for the good. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't feel any, any, because as near as I can tell is I've tried to carry the same message and done the same thing. Yeah. With all the guys that I have sponsored, giving them all the same opportunity to sit down, go through the book, arranging a time and sharing my experience, strength and hope with them. Yeah. So I don't uh, I don't feel any. Uh, you know, I'm sad because there are ones who, you know, I know uh, in the one case in particular. I feel some gratitude for being the instrument. Yeah. Because I yeah. constantly say that this stuff is not me. Yeah. Don't I'm not can't take credit for anything. I really can't. Not for this podcast. It just fell out of the space. Yeah. Uh, the other things. Hell, this wood shop is a miracle of recovery. The, other, the I have a men's retreat down at my camp and out in the country. Uh, that wasn't me. It just fell out of the freaking universe. And, yeah. you know, I do. I think sometimes I have a responsibility to catch it yeah. when it's tossed to me. You've got it. You've got to act when when opportunities or intuitions present themselves. You certainly it's like I, I I can fall back on my sponsor all day freaking long, but it's like, you know, I haven't seen any kind of burning bushes in their full conflagration. Yeah. Right. You know, what I have seen are some smoking bushes and, and most of the time the smoking bushes that I see, I look at them, Oh, there's a smoking bush and I go on about my business and I never do anything about it. There are some rare occasions where I'll have a good idea, quote unquote, a, a smoking bush, if you will, and I'll get my billows out and I'll start putting some, you know, breathing some air into that and it can turn into something that's, you know, just like the, the whole yoga thing. You know, I don't, that's just one example that flies off the top of my head. When I got that idea on Sunday, you know, I ought to start doing yoga or I ought to see, you know, I did the no, Google check search. It out. Then the next morning I set my alarm for five o'clock in the morning, got up at five o'clock in the morning. I ended up at the yoga studio at 6 a.m. You know, that's and, and the, the benefits from a physical standpoint for me are, you know, at this, I imagine will be a burning bush, if you will. I could have just as easily thought, ah, yeah, that's a little bit early. Now nah, I'm not going to worry about that and gone back to watching the football game or whatever the hell it was doing. I was doing that evening. So, you know, because my sponsor talks the about that. I went off as well. in the morning, so. Nope. Yeah. Never, that was, 
the, you know, that's a the, bad idea. The the day that my sponsor came into the restaurant, and right. he, as he was getting up to walk out, I could have just as easily in my mind said, "Oh, I'm not going to bother that guy. He doesn't want to mess with me." And I could, and I don't. Would I be sitting here today had I not? I don't know. Yeah. I really, I don't know. You yeah. know. So there are, you know, Chuck C talks about seconds and inches, man. Yep. Seconds and inches. You know, when it I is. get when I get inspired, if you will, to certain things, unless I put some action behind whatever the inspiration is that's the next right thing it's going to be relatively mean hell i've uh, i've been in real estate now since 2002 you know there was a whole lot of of stuff that had to occur after i after the idea popped in my head about you know maybe i'll get my real estate license you know i mean i had to find out where the classes were i had to enroll in the classes i had to make the time to go to the class and then you know to there's just and that's an interesting thing because what it is is this dichotomy about this letting go and quit, you know, that we're not fighting and we're not driving, but yet we still have to do these actions and do this stuff, you know. And, you know, a lot of times the anchor point in between those two things are keeping in contact with people like my sponsor and that kind of thing so that I can check that out yeah. through somebody else and not have to do anything alone anymore. And he says, yeah, man, I think that's a great idea. You ought to. Or he goes, well... You know, do you ever think about, uh, yeah, that may not be so cool. And, and, and my sponsor really encourages me to go after the things that he believes are inspired. Yeah. You know, and he kind of warns me sometimes, but they also let me walk into this, you know, if it's my thing, then it's my thing. But it's interesting, you know, that whole, it is so, cause it's, you can't write a book about what you just said, like taking that inspiration and saying, okay, what is that? That's operating under these principles and having some, some head cleared, doing some day at a time, hanging out with some solid people, starting to get a little that rubbing off on you and, uh, and beginning to learn how to operate in a way that I, that's foreign to me was foreign to me. It's becoming more and more. I could trust myself today a little more than I used to be able to. I don't get myself in the messes I used to, even in early sobriety, Uh, that, that difference between when, when I'm pushing and when I'm accepting a gift really, and that's, you know, for me, that's all about having that relationship with a God of my understanding. Because if, you know, if it's the next right thing, then my responsibility is to put action behind what the next right thing mm-hmm. is. Um, if I'm having to force something too much, it, but having a relationship with God really kind of helps. And, and also sponsorship as well. That's that is invaluable in determining what the next right thing is and kind of separating okay is this really the next right thing or is this some kind of selfish motive that i'm like because i mean hell as alcoholics we can easily turn the next right thing into some kind of self-determined objective that's really for our own Mm self-interest so that's why it's i agree wholeheartedly It's, it's important to have a sponsor for those kind of things so, yeah, and you just touched on that too, you know, I mean, what happens too is that, you know, I might think this is something, but if I start like running into friction at a certain level with that path, I'll say, you know, this is probably not the thing. Uh, Cause when things flow for me and things just kind of line up, then I know I'm like, you know, it's kind of like thinking about God's will, right? I don't really know what it is, but usually I know what it ain't. Right. <laughs> uh, when I start having trouble with, uh, I'm a bump of my head against things. There's a point to that, you know, and obviously you know, that's also a, a indeterminable thing about like how, cause sometimes I do need to knock a little harder. 
yeah. to make something happen, yeah. you know, and where's that at, you know, and, and I can't, you know, I'll keep on falling back to this thing is I can't do this alone. I got all these buddies and almost everybody, whatever I'm like doing, whatever this thing is, I'm today, I usually know somebody's got some experience in that yeah. department, you know, and I got somebody reach out to and go, Hey man, uh, you got a minute to talk. Hey, I'm doing this and this is what's happening. Can you, what do, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. And you know, so the, to kind of wrap up where, I, where I start, you know, the whole thing with thinking that life was going to be gray and dull and that life was over once I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, if I wasn't going to be allowed to drink and, and do drugs, <laughs> it's, it's almost ridiculous to think that, you know, with all of the things that any human being can do that God has put on this planet for us, for me to be so unimaginative, for me to lack any kind of like real thought or like I said, imagination to think, oh, okay, so you can't drink or do drugs. So life is over. How, how boring or unimaginative could a human being be to think that just because that one thing is, I mean, I, that's kind of pathetic, really. It really I mean, is. It really, <laughs> think really about is. Because, like, I mean, since I have been sober, I met my wife, let's see, my sobriety date is January 11th of 1998. Um, I went through a couple of, uh, well, really one relationship early in sobriety that I thought was, it was with an AA girl. And I thought it was, um, it was like the first time I'd ever done anything right in a relationship. And so when it fell apart or didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out, dude, I was, de I was devastated on one hand, but on the other hand, I knew what I've already shared. AA had taught me the meaning of life. I know why I'm here. I'm here for combination to read and get closer to God, get whatever experience God wants me to have to be a service to another human being. So when that relationship fell apart, I literally fell back on that. So I did, I wasn't like, so woe is me. Cause I was like, Bart, dude, get over it, move on. This is just not. And, you know, the evidence of that is my wife that I have today, you know, because my wife and I met in 2001 and the, the AA love that I had, the first AA love that I had, the first relationship that I had after I got sober, that when it ended, I was devastated. Um, had that relationship worked out, I wouldn't because she already had one child and she was a little bit older than me and she didn't, she wasn't really interested in having any more children. So had that relationship worked out, I would, my life as it exists today, I don't know. In the life that I have today, I met my wife in 2001. So, and that's another kind of neat story. Um, my grandparents, I had, when I got sober, I had three of my grandparents still living, both of my mom's parents and my grandmother, my dad's mom was still living in Salem, Indiana. And, um, they all passed away. My grandfather passed away in October of 2000. Six months later, his wife, my grandmother had a mat and they all passed away somewhat suddenly. Six months later, his wife, my grandma, she had a massive heart attack when she was up in Wisconsin visiting my uh, aunt and uncle and she passed away. She was really broken hearted after my grandfather passed because they've been married for 50 years. And, um, when, Shortly before she passed away, she had come and stayed the night with me at my little apartment and we had watched the movie Cider House Rules. Hmm. So, and I, I still, I miss my grandparents desperately because my, then my mom's 
or I'm sorry, my dad's mom, she passed away. My grandmother passed away in April 2001, and my grand, my last grandmother passed away in June of 2001. So I lost three grandparents who I was loved dearly within way less than about a six, seven-month time span. I was about three years sober. Devastated, devastated. But at that same time, I met the lady who's my wife. We've been married since 2004 met her and started dating her in April of 2001. So when I look back on how God orchestrated that, he took two of the most or three of the most important people in my life within a very short period of time, but then brought the woman who has become the most important woman in my life for the last, God, how many years, several years, you know, going at hell, I guess next year, 19 years now. So, <laughs> you know, that's just, and that's how God has kind of worked in my life. We ended up getting married in uh, 2004. We had our daughter in 2006. Our son was born in 2008. Uh, my kids are freaking amazing. Uh, I mean, they, they're, I don't mean to brag, but I mean, they're, they're freaking amazing. Both of them had their black belt in Taekwondo uh, before they were 10 years old or by the time they were 10 years old. Wow. Uh, they're both, my daughter's, uh, she's a volleyball fanatic. Uh, my son, he's the baseball kid. They're both, they're both good students. They're both just, they're solid little humans, man. They're just solid little humans. And, uh, you know, I, I remember before I had children, I was like, cause when me and my wife got together, I was kind of like, oh, you know, I mean, we can have kids or we don't have to have kids. I was kind of like, you know, I was neutral either way. Well, thank God my wife wanted to have children. Because having kids is a whole dimension of love that if you're not a parent, you can't, you just, you, I mean, it's a dimension of love that just, if you're not a parent, you can't get, you know, you just, there's no other way to put it. And, um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do, we travel, we got a beautiful home. Uh, we're financially secure. I've been blessed with a phenomenal career. All the good, you know, I scuba dive with sharks, which is one of, you know, I've gotten to hang out with David Wells in a luxury suite at Yankee Stadium watching the Yankees play the Red Sox. Wow. I've, I'm a big Yankees fan, so the family we do, we, I like to take in Yankees games when we can. You know, we get to go on vacation in Florida. My wife and I have been to New York City two different times. We've been to Costa Rica. Uh, you know, I mean, we just, we've just done some really cool shit. You know, and now... I do believe that all this cool stuff that I get to do is a byproduct of me continuing to do the next right thing that I don't want to do. I believe that's the trade-off. I do the next right thing that I don't want to do. God does see to it that as a result of that, I feel the way I want to feel. You know, I, I do a meeting at a treatment center. And let me tell that story real quick. About six or seven years ago, um, Scott L., made an announcement at the old Jeff Token Club at the Calm Down Group meeting. He said, hey, we need some help at the Turning Point meeting, treatment center here locally. We need some help at the Turning Point meeting. You know, if you can help us out, you know, please let me know. Well, I'm sitting in the meeting and immediately my mind says, you need to go say, tell Scott you're available after the meeting. And then right behind that thought is, oh, dude, you are far too busy to volunteer for that. I mean, my God, you're a high powered real estate. I mean, look at broker. all what I'm doing oh already. God, yeah, you are. You are, are you kidding me? You can't, you can't can possibly, possibly squeeze one more thing on my to, plate. Yeah. I mean, for heaven's sakes. And then right behind that, you need to go talk to Scott after the meeting right behind that. You're far too busy. Go talk to Scott after meeting. You're far too busy. So I picked somebody out and thought that guy ain't, don't look like he's very busy. Yeah. He ought to do it. <laughs> right. 
So my mind's fighting back and forth. And I mean, I knew when, when things like that happen, I know I'm going to go talk to Scott after the meeting. So after the meeting, I go up to Scott. I say, Scott, now I can't necessarily commit to every Tuesday, but here's my card. Give me a call if you need some help on a Tuesday. And if I am available, I'll, I'll be there. Well, like I said, this was roughly six or seven years ago. Lo and behold, within a week, Scott calls me. He says, hey, Bart, can you come down and help us out at this meeting on Tuesday? I look at my calendar. I don't have anything for Tuesday at 10 a.m. I'm like, yeah, sure, Scott, I'll be there. Tuesday at 10 a.m., I'm there. Me and Scott do the meeting. After the meeting, we walk out. He said, Bart, you know what I mean? I enjoyed the things you had to say. You know, can you come back next Tuesday? So I look on my calendar. I don't have anything next Tuesday at 10 a.m. I plug it in at 10 a.m. on that. I'm like, Scott, I'll be there. Come back the next Tuesday. Scott's there. We do the meeting. We leave. And Scott says, you know, Bart, hey, man, I really, you know, do you, can you come back? I look at my calendar. I don't have anything the following Tuesday at 10 a.m. So I plug it out. I was like, Scott, I'll be here. At some point, I think Scott called me and said, Bart, I can't make it this Tuesday. You know, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. Well, I think that was the last time I heard from Scott. And I've been doing that meeting at Turning Point ever since. And, you know, and I, I really, I have no idea whether that helps those kids, you know, not all kids, but I don't know whether it helps those, those folks addicts at, uh, at turning point or not at Tuesday, but I've been doing that meeting for the last six or seven years. And I know it certainly helped me, me right. you know, it keeps it in my face every week. Yep. I see people who are new to this deal who desperately need the message. Now, whether they want to hear the message is, is between them and the God yeah. of their understanding. Yeah. And there's certainly but, it's evident they're suffering from not having it, but God, God has, has saw fit to put me there to, yeah, do the best I can to yeah, carry it. You know, keeping and that's it green kind of thing, you know, and that's the same reason. I, that's part of the reason why I sponsor, you know, and as I've said, you, you said about the, it's not up to me for the results, right? That the outcome and all that's not my deal, but uh, I put my name in the hat and if God wants me working with somebody, it'll happen. And so I just continue to do that. And that, you know, that's, uh, that's the same thing, you know, keeping that in your keeping that around me. I need to keep that around me. I need to go to meetings for that effect. I need to be working with new people. Uh, when I'm asked to go do some of that stuff like that, that, uh, go, I've been, you know, I have another, but does an evening meeting, uh, and, uh, go do those kind of things. Cause yeah, it's, uh, the yep. disease will let you forget just like you talked about it six months sitting there going, cause it's the same thing. And from what I hear, because I listen to people talk today rather than wait to, for the next thing I'm going to say, uh, is that that still happens to you at 22 years that this still can disease can still go oh yeah I, I i have watched folks who i have thought were absolutely rock solid in recovery who've, re, who've been sober for 10 years or more yep i've watched them relapse yep and that shit scares me me too and you know, and, yeah, I, and I truly believe that the life that I have today is a byproduct of doing all the stuff that I don't want to do. You know, yeah. I get to enjoy the, the, all the good, all the good stuff. You know, my yeah. mind, <laughs> this is a condition that I realized I had somewhat early on. My mind is like a sponge when it comes to bullshit. It like absorbs bullshit and, and, and fantasy and stuff you know, about where I fit in and my importance to this planet. It absorbs all the bullshit, self-aggrandizing or however you say it, crap that it, you know, it just takes that stuff up like a sponge. I mean, it retains that stuff that will kill me. It retains it. The truth, it just freaking seems to float in one ear and out the other. It just doesn't, you know, it jumps in there and bounces around a couple times and shoots right out the other ear and so knowing that that's my condition, I have got to make damn sure 
that I'm constantly putting myself in an environment where I can hear the truth about me. Mm-hmm. And the truth about me is found for me in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, on AA tapes, AACD, the guys that I sponsor. That's where I hear the truth about me. So it's critically, you know, I'm a believer that there's no such thing as standing still in recovery. Right. If you're standing still in recovery, you are going backwards by default. Yep. You know, you're either progressing or you're staying on the front lines and keeping and doing the next right thing when you don't want to, or you've said, fuck that. I've done, you know, I've done, you know, you're doing the bare minimum. And if you're doing the bare minimum, in my opinion, you're, and I don't mean to be judgmental or, but that's, you know, human beings, that's what we do. We're judgmental. So, and I have proven to myself that when I did that and tried that, it didn't work, you know, and I am somehow or another came around to, to having some wherewithal with God's help to see that that didn't work and go, okay, <laughs> that didn't work. All right, we'll do something a little different. And, and I do, you know, that's what I, recovery is my life today. Really? I go out and do this handyman stuff and I work around in here so I can pay the bills and keep the kids fed and that kind of thing. But the majority of my waking hours are pretty much spent. If it's in, in some area of recovery at some level or another. Well, you know, I, I'm a believer that, at different seasons, because I remember when I was, uh, it was a few years ago, I've been really blessed to go. Dawn speaks out of town a lot of times. Uh And usually about once or twice a year over the last several years, um, he'll invite me to go along with him. I've been out to California, two different conferences with him out there. I've been to conferences with him in Alabama. We flew down to Georgia on a little twin prop plane one year with the guy who came up and picked us up at, uh, Oh, the little airfield by La Relais. Uh, and that was a freaking awesome experience. We've been to West Virginia. We've been to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we've been to Richmond, Virginia. So I've been blessed to kind of travel with him to do, and I love, love, love doing all that stuff. Um, and I can't think of where I was going with what I was going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just kind of Bob Olson. He says, you know, my mind's like a piece of Swiss cheese. You know, sometimes something falls in one of those holes and it's like it never comes. <laughs> yep, I get it. it. Happened to me a few times when we first yeah. started talking earlier uh, when, when we first got here. I have I get, I get something there and I and that's what I'm aiming at is I wheel around and want to impress you with my words. And then when I get to it, I go, I don't remember why I was going. Yeah. Yeah. So, but participate in my my recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Okay. So, you know, God will assign me whatever role and that role at different stages of my life may be different. Yeah. 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 You know, like um, I remember it's been a few years ago. I was at a conference with Don and one of the other speakers, because that's been the other cool thing is meeting some of the other speakers and getting to talk and hang out with them. I was having breakfast with a guy named Danny B. And I was feeling kind of guilty because I felt like I was slacking on my AA obligation. And I had been feeling bad about it for a little while at that point, because I don't I think I was in a spot where I wasn't actively carrying any guys through the steps. And I was hitting two meetings a week, but I'd been in a stretch where it just didn't feel like I was doing enough from a recovery standpoint. And so and I, and I talked to Danny about it. I was like, Danny, I just you know, I feel like I'm slacking or I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. And I started he's like, well, Bart, what do you got going on? And I started, well, you know, I'm selling real estate, you know, providing for my family. You know, I got, you know, my kids are this age. My kids are in these. He's like, Bart, I think you're doing okay, buddy. Maybe you should just lighten up a little bit and not be so hard on yourself. Because, you know, at different different stages of your life, God may assign you different roles. You know, your your role 
at this stage of your life may not be that you go to five AA meetings a week where you're sponsoring 10 guys. And, yeah. you know, Bart, that's okay, buddy. That's okay. You got a family. You're providing for your family. You're setting an example for them. You're staying sober. You know, so don't, you know, so relax. Take it easy. That's we why don't I need struggle. those other people yeah. in my life to help so me see that. That's, uh, and, you know, like now, I mean, probably, I mean, I've got guys that I'm sponsoring, but most of my life right now probably is is doing stuff that's not so much. I mean, I still stay pretty firmly in recovery, I believe. Or it seems I'm still doing the next right thing when I don't want to. I'm maintaining doing that turning point meeting once a week like I've been doing for the past six or seven years. I've got several guys. Well, there are two, two guys that I'm actively working through the steps with at this point. And then my kids, you know, both I coach my one son in travel baseball. My other daughter, we got volleyball tournaments. My wife and I figured it up at the end of December. We had between the end of December and July 4th weekend, we had three weekends where we didn't have a travel baseball or a travel volleyball tournament. Yeah. So our life is full. It's full. And, and you know, they're like, Bart, you can carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous outside in the real world. It's not just exclusive to you carrying the yeah, you don't have to have a book in, in your hand or be taken through somebody through the steps yeah. or whatever. We what there's another line in there. So a bigger demonstration is we're before us in our respective pro- homes, occupations, and affairs. So yeah, so uh, you know life is life is so remarkably good and full, and you know I it just I'm it's it's unbelievable the. The guy that I was 22 years ago, how clueless. I mean, how utterly clueless a human being can can be. And it's sick, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, that was me. So. You know, that's funny. I could, most of the time people get to some point and they will sigh yeah. at the other end of the table. I hear it over and over again. There's some bell ringer stuff. You know, you'll hear the same thing. And uh, usually when somebody's like, <sighs> It's yeah. like a clue. It's like, yep, yeah. uh, we're getting close to the end. Um, I love the way you deliver what you carry. Uh, it is reminiscent of Dawn a bit. Just a little different, you know, it's a little it's a different flavor. But I hear that, you know, I can hear who your sponsor is. Uh, I love him to death, Uh you know, I was listening. I thought I needed. I was listening to speaker tapes, and I thought probably be a good idea. So one guy's in California, and there are guys in Oregon, there are guys in Florida. On you know, you'd see Don from Florida or Bill from yeah. Sarasota, or you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, and I thought, well, you know, I probably should be listening to somebody local. You know, it probably probably make more sense to me, and it'd be a little more connectedness. So I started searching, and I ran into Don M on it, not having any idea. You know, it's yeah. just one of them nighttime keep out. I did learn that listening to that stuff kept me from going nuts in the evenings and stuff when I was early on. You know, I could put on a speaker tape, some people would turn me on to them and told me. And so I learned that if I would put one of those on, I could like sit here and be okay for a little while longer. And I uh, hit Don M. And of course, he's got a fantastic story and all that. And like two weeks later, uh, I was going to a meeting and down to the New Albany Token Club, which is a place I really don't really care for all that much from the cigarette smoke and different stuff like that. But you know how sometimes I you need a meeting and there's one there a lot, right? right. So I roll in there and the air's clear. 
what's going on here? You know, I can remember now, I didn't have that much wherewithal, but I knew there was something going on because there was, this place is not, because I dreaded going down there and coming home right. smelling like smoke, taking my clothes off before I come in the house, put them in a bag, taking them to laundry. Yeah. Uh, and and I sit down and, uh, and they say, it's Larry's birthday, you know? And I was like, wow, man, this place is freaking packed, you know? And I said, well, you know, there ain't no cigarette smoke. He says, speaker, in respect to the speaker. Like, okay, cool. And I'm sitting there with some guys, you know, and they introduced the speaker, Don M. Well, you know, I just like listened to his tape like three times in the past week, you know. Yeah. And there he is. You know how we, you know, and I was like, whoa. But I do think of those things as these little higher power attaboy things. And I can look at that now and see where in some respect, I believe that's like kind of a little bit like, yeah, you're on the right path kind of thing. You know, when these these little synchronicity things happen. And like meeting, like running into you, the same thing. I think that happens on purpose, and how it happened is the way it was supposed to happen. Yeah. And I and I and I just liked to, that path of watching, and the stories that you told were the same kind of a things of these, you know, this old deal where you couldn't have written the script, you know, and you can't see it forward. You know, right. that old that little. There's a little meme going around Facebook says something about life is can only be seen backwards and only experienced forward or something like that. And, and, and my sponsor helps me get those eyes to see that stuff too. Cause I still am not real good at seeing it. I see it sometimes. I see them get better, but to see those things that uh, happen. And the other thing that you had talked about, you know, you ran through it just like almost voluntarily was like, I always like people to share about these miracles that happen as a, you know, as a direct result of having doing these, doing this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. And I mean, there's just no question about it, you know. And it, it goes to that thing of people out there sitting there thinking they can't have a life when they get when they set that stuff down, and it's just not true. Oh no. no. And uh, and and I don't know that saying it one more time makes any difference. But Don said something one night, and you heard it, and it sunk in, right? Mm-hmm. And I do believe that that's something that happens with this way we do these speakers and speak from the podium and carry these messages because somebody out there needs to hear what you said, right? I have people coming here all the time and I'll ask them to podcast. And I like to get a guy on his first year, like real close to his first year anniversary and get him in here and talk because I kind of think I'm in, maybe down the road we'll do it again and we'll see what's a little different and stuff. And uh, he'll say, I don't really have anything to share. And I say, we all have something to share. There's somebody out there that needs to hear what you have to share. And uh, don't discount yourself like that. You go just got well, a year there's there's so many things that i just you know i, I it, it, life gets so good that there are some things that that i do or that i've done that you know i just it's it's just our normal life you know like my wife and i we go to concerts all the time i mean we go to a lot of concerts you know i took my kid uh just last year uh, i had seen kiss in the fourth row at the yum center last march and I'm always been a big kiss. Me fan. too. You mentioned and, earlier, uh, you wrapped off some of that and we're the same age. So we would have been right. doing the same things and liking the same things. And it sounds like we liked even more of the same things. <laughs> well, so, and then, so I, after I saw him at the Yum Center, I'm like, I got to take Zach. So I took my tenure and he was 10 at the time, took him up to Indianapolis to see them. And, you know, we get, I mean, we get good seats, you know, and then my wife and I, we're going up uh, into Chicago in August to see, she's a big Def Leppard fan, but Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Joan Oh, yeah, Jeff, I heard I that. I else. saw that line. We, got, they they got, we got like 10th row tickets in Chicago. I'm like, don't tell me how much you paid for those. I, mean, I don't want to know. Yeah. 
So, and then, you know, going, uh, hell, we just got back from a cruise in October where I went scuba diving with my daughter, who's 13. I uh, got her certified to scuba last summer. And we went on a cruise over fall break last October. And she went, her and I went scuba to get scuba diving together in Honduras last, uh, last October yeah. while we were on the cruise. And then we stopped and when we got back to Miami, we stayed in Miami for a few days and her and I went and scuba dove down in uh, Key Largo. And, you know, seeing some of the Yankee games that we've seen and just the places we've been able to travel and the places where we get to eat when we go to these places and the places that we get to stay. And, you know, we were out for, been out to L.A. last. We were out in L.A., not this past New Year's, but the New Year's before. And that was only like the third time I had been out to California. They had never been. And we got to, you know, do the whole Hollywood thing and the Universal Studios and the VIP tour and just so much cool shit that we get to do. Disney cruises. Oh, we've done, we've done two different Disney cruises. Uh, and that, 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 that's probably been my favorite family vacation. Just, you know, my family, you know, just the, the connectedness and the time and the dad that I get to be, the husband that I get to be, all as a byproduct of this. You know, you had mentioned something about, you know, hearing some of the things that Dawn says come and Probably the greatest compliment I have ever been paid in Alcoholics Anonymous was when somebody, and I think they maybe made it, made the remark in somewhat of a snide derogatory way, was that, uh, he sounds just like Don Major. <laughs> and I, so I, uh, I'm like, I will take that all day long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will take that all day long. Uh, because that, that, and then I think he's had that effect on, many 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 more people the voice that god has given him for recovery is just uh i don't think it can be understated yeah 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 a huge don fan and have been from that moment that i thought i needed to hear a local speaker because and uh yeah he's a he's a i was i for whatever reason i'd heard about his birthday last year and i don't really know why it came about uh but uh and, I, and it surprised me that his home group was in Jeffersonville. I don't know, you know. I, right. I, I was it just I was didn't think that would be the case, you know. And yeah. you go to that meeting, and there's a, just kind of a plain old regular old meeting, you know. No flash, no circumstance. It's just a meeting, and uh, it's interesting. He's a hell of a dude. He's uh, I really love I really love Don. Well, and getting getting to travel with him and getting to know him the way I've gotten to know him. What's been so cool is, you know early on in recovery and you know when he first became my sponsor you know he was kind of like robert plant to me you yeah. know if you could have you know led says like he's the robert plant to me of you know like aa and having been sober for then having developed the relationship that we have over the years that we have um i know his humanness yep Same and that's here. what i really love is that's where that relationship developed and humanness. became you know and, uh, and, he, and he floated down from that perch yeah. And became a real dude that's yeah. just as nutty as I am, really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. That's, uh, so. I honor all that. I honor that sponsor sponsee relationship thing. I love that. Uh, this, and I try to cultivate the same things with the people that God puts in my path to work with, you know. Yeah. And I tell them that from the beginning, you know, I'm not sitting, I'm not really here to take you through the steps. I'm going to do that. But what I want to do is cultivate a relationship with you. And we start doing this thing life together because I need another teammate. And God seems to have put you down here with me for some reason. And that's what I'm doing. Now, I'm going to take you through the steps while we're doing it. 
Well, you know, along those same lines, you know, ironically enough here about, uh, I guess it was probably three or four years ago, a guy that I met in Turning Point. I would have first met him probably four or five years ago in Turning Point. And then, you know, and I, I, that's the other cool thing about doing that Turning Point meeting is I get, you know, I get to watch these people and not all of them, obviously, but, you know, there's a fair percentage of them that come out of Turning Point. Some of them have even stayed sober. (laughs) <laughs> Some of them even stayed sober, like for real. And I get to watch them. So that's yeah. one of the great joys that God has given me, all as a byproduct of me doing something I didn't want to do because God knows I was way too busy to go up to Scotty and volunteer yeah. for the Turning Point meeting yeah. on Tuesday mornings. So that's really, that's what God does with the shit that I don't want to do. But when I do it anyway, because the next right thing, just the stuff's amazing. But one of the guys that I met in Turning Point four or five years ago about two or three years ago, I was having a new HVAC system put in my home by a, by a friend of mine in the program. And the guy who I'd met in Turning Point four or five years ago was helping, was a helper for this guy putting the system in my house. And, um, and, and Matthew at the time, he said, yeah, he said, Hey, you know, I'm getting my real estate license. I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Well, if you have any questions, you know, know after you Give me a give me a holler and I'll uh, you know I'll be I'll be happy to answer any questions or give you any guidance I can. So he ended up getting his real estate license, and as that, I think right after that or somewhere in the in that time frame, um, he had asked me to be his sponsor, and he said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm will you take me through the steps? And I said, sure. And uh, so I became his sponsor and he was getting his real, that was all coinciding at or around the same time. And once he got his real estate license, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't really sure, but I had gotten to know enough of him and I've, you know, I've been selling real estate for a long time now and I'm certainly busy enough to take on somebody to kind of help me out. And I've been looking for the right person. I've tried a couple people in the past, just hasn't worked out. Nobody's fault, just hasn't gelled like it was meant to be, so to speak. So anyway, um, this guy, uh, I wasn't sure about the whole sponsee taking him Work on. As a, and... Yeah, I wasn't sure how all that would, you know, go or if that was the next right thing or what have you. But, uh, you know, he's he's solid in his recovery. And hopefully I'm walking the walk myself. Um, and he started working with me. Uh, we're a little over two years. So he's been with me two years now for sure. And he's generating some of his own business. Some of it's probably the majority of it's still coming from stuff that I, uh, that I provide to him, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he is kicking ass. And I mean, it's worked out. It's been a win-win for both of us. And this, you know, and it's so funny because I remember when I first saw him in turning point, I was like, he, he struck me as one of those this guy's never going to make he's it. Never he's gonna just make it. such a chump. You know, he's just so clueless. Like, I mean, just like I was, frankly, but, you know, I was being all judged. But, you know, what goes on in my head isn't what goes on in the record books. What goes on in my head isn't what goes down in the record books. What goes down in the record books is what I do regardless of what goes on in my head. And thank God that's how it's set up because I'd be dead if it was set up any other way. Yeah. Thank God what goes down in the record books is what I do and not what I think about it. So, yeah. Uh, Matt and I, we met right out of gates. We're probably at the same time. We're right along the same lines. Yeah. Uh, I can't really remember, I think, but it doesn't make any difference. Uh, it sounds comparative if I was, but my point there is, is that when you come in at the same time and you meet, 
you know, there's a little battle buddy kind of thing that happens when you're bumping into people who are at the same place you are when you're oh, yeah. early, you know, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I've always, uh, and I know the other people you were, the HVAC guy too. Yeah. Uh, we, we traveled a similar path side by side too. Matt and I met a meditation meeting. Uh, and that's the first time I, cause I, and, you know, it's funny how you like, I can remember first time I bumped into him and that's kind of same thing I thought about him too, but I, I don't just, know why I thought he hire myself, you know, I just, love <laughs> but, him. uh, I mean, I just, I just, I just truly love him. He's got a great work ethic, work ethic. He's, he's just really a good, solid dude. He does some things that are a little different than aren't how I would do them, but yeah, I, but, well. I, but that's fine. That's fine, you know? Uh, so it's been... Imagine it's if we were a, all made with the same cookie cutter. It's been a teaching lesson for me, too, to just, hey, the dude's being successful in, in spite of, you know, you let him alone. Let, let him be him. And, you know, so yeah. I've just... Yeah, I've forgotten. I saw, uh, you know, I saw the, the connection between you two on... Uh, uh, on the internet and on yep. social media and things that uh, it had slipped my mind. Yep. I just love him to death. He was just over at my house Sunday night for the Super Bowl. came over, really? had a bite to eat. Yeah. I just, I just, I just love the guy. Yeah. So. Cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. These stories just pile up, you know, and, uh, you wonder, you know, like, uh, it's just, it, I believe they, you know, I like hearing them. Yeah. I get a guy on the other side of the table. I get to know him better. That's the, that's we. if you listen to some of these things, I'll talk about this collateral damage, but what I get here is this collateral benefit Yeah. that every time somebody comes here, I get to know them better. And I walk out the door with a, somebody, a, a friend or right. a better knowledge and a better understanding, a better uh, uh, connection with that person. And, and today that's what I try to do. Like you said, I try to build connections with people. That's, it's, it's what I want to do. It's in my heart to do that. To, yeah. To, to you know, there's another little thing of you know for, for like there was a big period of time when if you bumped into me you had a negative reaction probably right. there was some negativity that came off when you bumped into this dude and uh, today I try not to be that I like to be a, I want to be a positive thing here you know doing that other that other thing well cool man I'm really glad you come by today uh, thanks for inviting me yeah it's kind of again yeah. it's that providential stuff I don't think you know I giggle at myself and I look upward. Yeah. For whatever that, I don't know where God really is. Right. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. That, but but I do. I look upward and I do that right. little thing and I smile at times. And Because when I see like something happen and I kind of go. And sometimes that's a question because somebody will be here and like talking about something that has to do with recovery or something. Or there'll be somebody standing here that maybe I'm supposed to be saying something to, you know. And, and I don't know if I just, so it's almost like, all right, so you put them there. You know, and I really trust my gut on that a lot of times, you know, sometimes oh, that's yeah. a no and sometimes that's a yeah. So it's like, well, it just so happens I might have some experience with that problem <laughs> and, and be able to do that. And when I saw you in the yoga studio, I had that same kind of feeling. I was like, well, cool. Yeah. Uh, I've been waiting on him, but uh, good cool. deal. So uh, thank you again. Um, thank you. Appreciate you to death. You've always had, you've, you've impressed, you know, and I know that sounds funny, but you've had, let's say. You've had an influence on my recovery from the get-go because you demonstrated what it looked like something that I would want. You look like a dude that had what I wanted. So I started learning to pay attention to those. I continue to get distracted over my shoulder, over your shoulder and over this shoulder because there's a big old red-tailed hawk oh. that's playing in my yard, and it has been the entire podcast. Oh, yeah. I've seen it go by there, and it's sitting in this cypress tree right now uh, on a limb up there. See my parents oh, up there? Good Lord. 
Yeah, it yeah. Looks like a freaking owl. Yeah, it's a red, big red-tailed hawk. He must be. There's something about. We got a lot of squirrels, and they uh, they come here and uh, eat pretty well. But he's been here for the entire time. I've seen yeah. him swing through the back of there, and he comes jumping up on on you know over here in these trees. Cool. Cool. Uh, maybe that's a sign too. Have to look up there. Never know. Look at the significance of a hawk flying into your life. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this. Thank you all for supporting. We just crossed over 11,000 downloads. That's a thanks to you guys. Uh, You know, I've been offered some ways to participate in my recovery in some unique ways. And and this is one of them. And I'm grateful for that. And, and, you know, if if nobody was listening, I don't know if I'd be doing it. So thank you all for doing it because I enjoy it. I just do it. uh, I guess I get a I get a I get to get high on some things today that are clean. It's yoga. It's doing this podcast. It's helping another person. It's being a dad. It's being a son to my father who still who lives with me. You know, we turn the tables, right? Instead of living in his basement, he's living in my upstairs. Uh, and, and I get to do this stuff and have uh, a life I couldn't. I, I simply couldn't have imagined. Really, I just couldn't. Uh, the things I get to do today. DTMWW.net, my little handyman woodworking business. Uh, spiritualunderground.org is the website that supports this podcast. 12 Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. It's got 12 steps and some tools in it that uh, you can find on Amazon. And I want to make sure and mention Darren's music will be wrapped around this podcast. Uh, I'll close like I always do, you know. I stole both of these things from somebody else, and uh, they're a little bit of mantras for me today. If you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. And thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today. Peace out.
I'm not afraid.